0: is movie mindset we are back and today we are going to be discussing a cycle of three movies made and remade throughout the ages we are talking pods save america that's right we are discussing (laughs) the invasion of the body snatchers films beginning with don siegel's 1956 horror sci-fi classic then going on to Philip Kaufman's version in 1978, and closing it out with Abel Ferrara's in 1993. But before we begin, uh, let me just say that we are, we are joined by our first ever guest on Movie Mindset, and joining us to talk pods and the creeping, uh, the, the creeping dehumanization of modern life. We are joined by friend of the show, recording artist and movie genius, Dan Beckner, who you may know as the genius behind the music to Movie Mindset. You are hearing <laughs> his voice on every episode, so we had to get you on as the first guest. Dan, welcome to Movie Mindset. Hello, uh, and thank
1: you for having me. I'm, I'm a bit of a pod person myself, you know?
0: <laughs> the, the, the hosts and guests of this show, we are, we, I, ho- I hope it's clear that we are thoroughly on the side of the pods We have pod mindset and and we'll be talking pods on today's show.
1: I wanted to just say that like, you know, Will, you and I were talking earlier this week or was it yesterday? And I think we both came to the same conclusion that in every single iteration of of this story by Jack Finney, this classic like influential science fiction story, every iteration across the ages, we both were rooting for the pod people. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes, like and, and like as they the go on, people would win. And as they go on, I I, I think that by the time you get to the Ferrara movie, is probably the most explicit about how humanity is the villain of all of these movies.
1: I, I'm just saying, there's a there's a historical fork that the that the Ferrara uh, version posits, which is uh, if Pod people happened to uh, to take over a military base in the southern United States. Maybe 9-11 wouldn't have happened. I don't know. (laughs) Yep.
0: Uh, But before I begin my my opening remarks on the Invasion of the Body Snatchers films, I would just like to make clear to any pedants listening that we are all aware of the 2007 remake of this movie starring Daniel Craig and Nicole Kidman, directed by about six different people. Uh, I'm not including it. In our in our consideration of the invasion of the body snatchers films, because even in its badness, it has absolutely nothing of value or interest to say about the aughts and the era that produced it. Thumbs down, <laughs> yeah. bad movie. Avoid bad movie. At all costs. Do not watch. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, as I've already mentioned, today we're looking at three iterations of the invasion of the body snatchers movies, a cycle of films that allow us to talk about three god level directors and how the genre of Lovecraftian body and cosmic horror and the body-snatching template can be used to express in each decade a distinct fear about the ongoing process of dehumanization in modern American society. However, rather than locate the source of our fear in a more traditional invasion, all three of these films in their own way suggest that most of the work in Losing Our Souls has already been done before the alien spores ever arrive. I should also note that in these films' fractal array of social anxiety and unseen cultural turmoil, uh, they also play a great deal with gender, sexuality, and fears of domestic family life. Basically, they're all horny in their own way. Oh, yeah. These films each express a really powerful and frightening idea, and one that hits especially hard uh, Rewatching all three of these films in a post-COVID world. It's this idea that everything can look and seem exactly the same as it did before but some vague and hard to locate and understand apocalypse has already happened indeed the world has already ended and has been replaced with a counterfeit of some time of some kind there's something monstrous happening that everyone is in on and some silent holocaust has occurred just at the periphery of your perception it all takes place in the things that we take for granted every day it's also important that this feeling is one that you can map onto any number of social and political agendas and points of view. It really is a universal feature of modern life. And probably most importantly and relevant to the 21st century, they're all about how using uppers is how we stay human. That's right. (laughs) Sleep is the
1: mind killer. Sleep is unproductive.
2: This is what the Adderall shortage is all about. This is why they're doing it. They want us to fall asleep. (laughs) (laughs) Now,
0: in, in the Siegel version in the 1950s, this fear comes in the guise of, uh, sort of po- ideas that were popularized in books like William White's The Organization Man, which spoke to the conformity of mid-century American life, but also uh, in the fear of the spread of hostile alien ideologies literally taking root in our minds and bodies, be it in the fear of communism or just as easily in the fear of anti-communism. In the late 1970s, we see in Kaufman's version, which transposes the action to San Francisco, the epicenter of the counterculture in the 1960s, it becomes about the death of political idealism and its replacement with individually focused California ideology of self-improvement in counter sessions and therapy culture. And then finally, in 1993, right after the first Gulf War, Abel Ferrara's movie, Uh, relocates the horror to within the family unit and a military base in the Deep South, and really just the idea of the military-industrial complex as a source of evil, even in a post-Vietnam era. Uh, What makes all three of these movies so effective as both horror and social allegory is that in all of them, you're introduced to a world that has already ended before the opening credits run. All that's left is for the human characters that remain to figure it out, but in all cases, it is already too late. That yes. is body snatchers, and Hessa and Dan, let's dive in to the the original 1956 invasion of the body snatchers, directed by Don Siegel. And now I, I said that this is an opportunity for us to talk about these movies, but also three very distinct uh, God level directors. So just beginning with uh, Don Siegel, uh,
2: how how would how would you guys describe the like uh, Don Siegel as a director? I think he's like very of the peck and paw. To cut from that same cloth of like the man's man kind of, you know, a lot of uh, men going their own way type movies. <laughs> it's, it's, there's it's a, lot it's of a tough guy. Director. A lot of yeah. masculine grit mm-hmm. here, even if it is blunted
1: by like 1950s conventions as the, the lead in the, in the, in the sequel uh, body snatchers, romancing his girl with uh, like uh, some kind of line from a song about time growing by the riverbank. <laughs> like,
2: he's, it's, he's still a tough guy, but, you know, he's a poet warrior. Oh, yeah. He yes. he reminds me of, like, S. Craig Zoller in a weird way in that he has these, like, I mean, I, f- I feel like his ideology is a little more front and center in some of his movies, like Dirty Harry, Yeah, where it's obviously, like, just a, a cool guy who's blasting away bad guys, because that's the only way to catch the Zodiac Killer. <laughs> but... um yeah I think he's definitely more of a right leaning when I think of like a right leaning kind of old timey director, my mind tends to go towards him
1: yeah there's um there there are like uh lines of political oppositional political force going on in this film so you've got Siegel as kind of a right leaning like like you were saying this masculine right leaning director and then you've got Finney uh who wrote the story, the serialized uh, story that this, this uh, trilogy of films is, is based on. And like, Will, you were saying earlier, you know, the idea that you could interpret this film as communist or anti-communist, depending on what, depending on what side of the fence you're on, I think also speaks to the fact that the, I feel like the director and the writer and the people working on this film all had vastly different ideas of what the pod people were supposed to represent.
2: Yeah.
0: I mean, that's why it works so well. And like, you know, as, as you've pointed out, Don Siegel, he's a tough guy who made movies for real men about real men. You know, he's known primarily mm-hmm. for his collaborations with uh, Clint Eastwood. You mentioned uh, Hesse, you mentioned Dirty Harry, one of my favorite movies of all time. And then probably easily maybe even one of my top five movies of all time. Escape from Alcatraz with Clint oh, Eastwood. Yeah. He also did uh, Coogan's Bluff with Clint Eastwood. The uh, Killers. Clint Eastwood. Yeah, he, Clint Eastwood. With Reagan. Direct, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Clint Eastwood dedicated *Unforgiven* to Don Siegel and Sergio Leone, but um, uh, yeah, this was a this is a very low budget movie. It's one of his earlier movies. It was made in twenty three days on a budget of th- th- uh, three hundred eighty thousand dollars with a shooting schedule of twenty three days. So it's really like a like a bare bones movie. And just uh, one more bit about the uh, production note: it was uh, produced by Walter uh, Walter Wanger. Uh, who was uh, an American film producer who achieved notoriety in 1951 when he shot and wounded the agent of his wife, Joan Bennett, because he suspected they were having an affair. For the crime of shooting a man, he was sentenced to four months in prison in California. Uh, <laughs> and under And, and in which he went underwent a kind of like a, a liberal political conversion and came out of his hard time of four months in an honor farm in California, <laughs> decided to do movies about sort of social issues. And um, speaking of a S. Craig Zoller, he did a, basically a movie with Don Siegel about prison called, uh, if not Brawl in Cell Block 99. It was, uh, fuck what was the name of that movie? Uh, Riot in... And- uh, Riot and- <sighs> in Cell Block 11. Yeah, that's it. This is back
1: in the day where you could you could just take a fistful of uh amphetamines with your uh with your old fashioned at the at the steakhouse and then walk outside <laughs> with your friends and beat a man to death and like
2: not do any not do any time
1: because you were in the picture business.
2: Yeah, the judge would be like, "Hey, I saw that picture you, know, that was pretty cool. Yeah, pretty fine
1: picture, see?"
0: <laughs> if you could get if you if you could get a judge or a cop, Rita Hayworth's autograph, like you were legally, <laughs> yeah. you were basically allowed to commit murder. Yeah, yeah a murder a license. Free card. Yeah.
3: <laughs> no, no, you've got to get out of here, please
1: They come from another world, spawned in the light years of space, unleashed to take over the bodies and souls of the people of our planet, bringing a new dimension in terror to the giant super scope screen. Whatever intelligence
3: or instinct it is that can govern the forming of human flesh and blood out of thin air is is fantastically powerful, beyond any comprehension.
1: A cursed, dreadful, malevolent thing was happening to those he loved.
3: Miles, where do they come from? I don't know. Suddenly, while you're asleep, they'll absorb your minds, your memories. I don't want any part of it. You're forgetting something, Miles. What's that? You have no choice.
0: So, I, I you know, like in talking about uh, Don Siegel's vision of the body snatchers, for me, uh, this movie is really all about its lead performance with oh, yeah. the great, the great Kevin McCarthy as Amazing. Dr. Miles Bennell. He's sort of a. Uh, a sort of sophisticated small town California doctor who returns home after a medical conference to find that something, some sort of ill-defined, hard to put your finger on evil, has taken possession of the town of Santa Mira, California. Now, uh, Kevin McCarthy is an actor who is uh, really uh, integral in the development of my movie mindset because I will always, always associate it with him as the the villain in Weird Al Yankovic's UHF. Oh so, yeah. yeah, like that Incredible. is just. He is so funny in that movie. He is so perfect. Like I, you know, he came into my consciousness as like a, an old man, like an old cantankerous uh, tyrant, but he is very young and cool in this movie. And rewatching it, I was really struck by like how good a job he does at portraying the the classic like Lovecraftian male hysteria of a yeah. protagonist that. Um, Passes through the veil of some horrible knowledge and is driven completely and totally insane by it. Like Kevin McCarthy in this movie goes from being Don Draper to like a a filthy vagrant screaming at people on the highway at the end of the movie. And it is a very like.
2: So jarring when you see his hair at the beginning in the movie. Yeah, it's told
1: in flashback, right? Like it's, it's. It's also kind of a Lovecraftian device where like he is introduced as a bad man in a mental institution and his hair is plastered to his head and he's <laughs> raving and a lot of his it's funny like re-watching this a lot of his lines uh have just been recycled over and over and over again in tons of horror movies and science fiction movies like like they're coming for you like they're already here there's nothing mm-hmm. we can do. like it's uh it's amazing it's an amazing
0: yeah and like and and in, in the narration it's just like one of the first things you hear him said is like i am not insane I am not insane. So that's the surest thing that this year now listening to The Diary of a Madman. Yeah, and, exactly. And Dan, he, you,
1: is, he is Red Sutter Crane, you know? But
0: yeah. <laughs> and Dan, you mentioned, uh, you know, they're coming for you. They're coming for you, Barbara. Yes. I really, view, I really view Invasion of the Body Snatchers as made in 1956, a full decade before Night of the Living Dead, as one of the first real American modern horror movies and like really the... Um, the uh, the progenitor of Romero's and the entire zombie genre of of like American horror and like social uh, social uh, apocalypse and like uh, like and it's it's stunning to think of this how how early this movie was made considering like how much you know when when it resurfaced in 1968 when it really did feel like the fabric of America was like cannibalizing itself how ready yeah. like the, how readily this movie like feels ahead of its time in that regard
1: yeah. It's absolutely, it's absolutely like immediately of its time and ahead of its time. Like, uh, you know, I was, the, when I was watching it, and I'm sure we'll get into this the further we get into the story, but... A lot of the um, it just captured that immediate paranoia of uh, soldiers coming back from Korea and saying that uh, hey maybe it's not a good idea that the United States is dropping biological weapons developed by uh, Japanese war criminals you know and then <laughs> <laughs> yeah like like really the idea of the human mind as something that could be or or someone's human I, I mean you take it a step further I guess like someone's humanity as something that could be. Reprogrammed like a fucking punch card that was introduced in the 1950s and had horrible consequences
0: and you know and similar to night of the Living Dead, I think it's really interesting the way like both movies like black and white with like really low budgets can with like almost no special effects uh create like and build and sustain this like growing sense of uncanny menace using just lighting and the angle of shots to create this feeling of like uncanny Americana becoming uh, perverted or sort of like there's a slight shift in perspective. This like Norman Rockwell vision of America becomes an absolute nightmare.
2: Yeah, like especially like looking back at it when we know that that vision of like idyllic small town California America is like, you know, how much blood it's built on and everything in like full hindsight because we know that everyone's right saying, and also we know about the pod people, but like on an allegorical level, like we know everyone's right when they're saying like, something's not right here. Yeah, like, something's <laughs> off. Has he, like, like I, one way I could interface with this movie when
1: I was watching it is I, I'm reading um, Palo Alto right now, oh my um, God. which is a, you know, uh, incredible history of uh, the, the, like basically San Jose area and Silicon Valley in general going, starting at was starting with colonization basically Mm -hmm. and the railroads. And at the beginning of the film, when he almost runs over this kid and it's like the Grimaldi family farm, Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh yeah, these are the acceptable, uh, the acceptable frontline colonists that the, uh, that, that the people who are in control of the money in California decided were acceptable to settle these places like the uh, fictitious town that this takes place in, because they're, you know, they're European immigrants. And of course they didn't get treated as well as uh, maybe a Norwegian immigrant or something. Cause they're a little mm-hmm. swarthy. Uh, they sure knew how to farm eggplants. And yeah, you know, it's just, <laughs> it was it, like you were saying, like, yeah, this, this sort of funhouse house, uh, shadowy mirror of, of, of the conception of uh, California in the 1950s, like is is more real than than real, in a way. Yeah.
0: Um, so yeah, the movie begins with uh, Kevin McCarthy's character is returning from a medical conference to like you know the small town that he grew up in and practiced medicine in, and you know he begins to get these like little little touches that something is off, beginning with. Uh, little Jimmy Grimaldi running like dashing in front of his hey, car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Saying that, like, oh, like, his mom is not his mom. And they're like, hey, what's the matter with you? And then also, like, a spate of people who, while he was gone, made appointments with his medical office only to cancel them rather hastily. So, mm-hmm. like, a spate of cancellations. And now this boy who, you know, I'd also, like... <laughs> and then also, we also learned that his, his a former flame of his, Becky... Is back in town, and she's divorced what <laughs> and i love the I love the euphemism that they use to describe divorce in nineteen fifty six is where like his assistant says, "I heard she's been to reno and and then he goes, "Yeah, I was there myself last month so it's like <laughs> oh they've been to I, divorce is uh you know being introduced into this and also like i it, it's sort of like what are the pods or like what instigates this like social apocalypse it's the reappearance of two sexually available young young people who are like not married and have families into this small town community that You got to shut like, that you know, shit down <laughs> yeah
2: yeah and i i just have to say dana winter in this all time baddie just oh, absolutely yeah. gorgeous stunning i the first time i saw this i was like 12 or 13 and I, I like gasped i was like oh my god <laughs> and then I, especially
0: at the end in that shot reverse shot the, the the kiss of death between the two of them oh my god we'll get yeah. there but you know like uh, he, he goes to his office and, and and becky shows up and says that um her uh her cousin is uh is has the same delusion of young jimmy grimaldi that uh, her uncle you know looks and sounds like her uncle but has, is not her uncle and you know because he's a 1950s doctor it's really great that like back in the back in those days like any kind of uh anxiety or social problem could just be solved by giving men yes. women children valium you just give yeah. them valium and they're just like take take a <laughs> couple of these you'll feel better it doesn't, it doesn't he matter gives you wise. <laughs> he gives valium to the kid
1: he gives valium to the kid he's just like here you go this will this will shut your cry hole or whatever <laughs> and i don't know but so this this delusion that people are having. So it was and it was and it, it an, is an actual delusion called the capgrass delusion, which is a, a psychiatric disorder that they sort of identified in the early part of the last century. And it, it just basically is you believe that someone close to you, one of your family members or a partner or a friend has been, um, replaced by an imposter or subtly changed and. I was reading about that and I was thinking about um, this sort of, it's been going on for a couple of years now with the QAnon community, but this is a very popular thing right now.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, uh, JFK Jr.'s yes. um, new face like in uh, Die Another Day when <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> the Chinese general becomes uh, <laughs> yeah. but a like, white guy. Like,
1: like, my family uh, doesn't hate me um, because I want to throw a petrol bomb at a pizza parlor. Uh, my family hates me because they've been replaced by pod people.
2: Yeah, literally. Pod people, podcast people, people that listen to leftist podcasts such as Chapo Trap House. That's right, exactly.
0: So, yeah, there's been a breakout of NPCs in this small community. You know, people (laughs) you have to like advance their dialogue tree. Uh, They're walking into walls. They're clipping. Yeah, through the the soda shop.
2: Uh, (laughs) They're saying the same lines over and over again. They have names like Rich Boy Winston. They're like, (laughs) Uh, but you know, I mean, and and he suggests
0: to uh, Becky's. Cousin, uh, he suggests, like you know, in hushed tones, that she see a psychiatrist, which is like unspeakable in the nineteen fifties. And then later mm. we'll meet the town shrink, who is like the head pod demon. Yeah, and and you know, it's a theme that is developed certainly in the Philip Kaufman version that uh, therapy is evil. Yeah, that that all forms of mental health are just seeking to gaslight you into, or like, replace your soul and like fit you into some sort of dead social conformity. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: there's definitely a Scientology type uh, uh, mindset at work here, uh, as as it pertains to therapy and uh, the psychiatric profession.
2: It really, um, especially in the Kaufman one, we'll get into it. It really reminded me of uh, Neil Patrick Harris's character in The Matrix Four. Yes, yes, yes. I was just thinking. (laughs) Matrix
0: Resurrections is also a movie about how you should uh, kill your therapist. Yeah, (laughs) it's like uh, never trust a gay man, but never trust a gay (laughs) therapist either. (laughs) (laughs) And so, like, uh, so he he sort of he rekindles this uh, old love affair with uh, Becky now that they're now that they've both been to Reno, and you know, like he takes her out to the local local supper club to go out dancing. But before then, like the the town shrink uh, pulls up and he starts telling them about um, you know like these two these two cases he's encountered and we find that the town the town uh, head doc is like been aware of this for weeks now weeks and it's not just two people but like dozens and dozens mm-hmm. of his patients have been reporting this same like this people unconnected with each other who share this very specific delusion a very specific delusion and this is what i get here like i mean it's obvious that like he's already a pod Oh, yeah. What I love about this oh, yeah. is that, like, yeah. back to the idea I, I I said in my introduction here that, like, the world is already over. It's already yeah. too late. It is too late for any of the human beings in this movie to like make sense of what's happening to them or escape. Them. Where are you gonna yeah. go? What are you gonna yep. do? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he he takes Becky out to get a you know to get a, a typical ten martini dinner and uh, go go dancing with his uh. An, an old flame, um, but they're At interrupted. The club. By, yeah, they go to the supper club, and they're interrupted by a call for him. And um, they're uh, they're invited over to the the Belichick household. It's like a married couple who's uh, who's friends with uh, doctor Benell, who have discovered a a body in their house. And it's like he goes over, and it's like he's like, okay, like you're a doctor, like you have to tell me what's going on here. And they discovered this body that's like laid out on the pool table in their in their den. And it's mm. this weird, like, kind of unformed body. Uh, they, he describes it as, like, uh, like, a, like a coin before it's stamped. It has no mm. fingerprints, like a fetus. And then, of course, they're like, I think we could all use a drink now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's a solution for everything. There's a... When they're examining the body, there's actually a... T- like, if people are like, is this an anti um film? Is this a pro-communist film? It's a pro-communist film because uh, the person looking at the body says... You can kill a man by shoving an ice pick into the base of his brain and leaving a puncture so small no one could see it. I wonder who else had an ice pick uh, shoved in the back of his brain in Mexico City. Just saying.
0: So they're like, well, yeah, uh, uh, that's a bit weird. And then they begin to like, uh, like uh, Mr. Belichick and his wife. They're like, well, uh, like about, about how how tall and how like, and what would you say that this body weighs? And they're like, I don't know about uh 6'2, 175 pounds. They're like, hey, aren't you 6'2, 175 pounds? And he's yeah, like, oh, damn, that oh, strange. uh
1: uh-uh.
0: So they're like, look, just uh just babysit the body and uh, tell us if anything interesting happens with it. Just see if it wakes up or something like that. And then um uh uh doc- Dr. Bennell takes uh Becky back to her her father's house and like you know here we get like uh, a, a sense of like the family home as this sort of I don't know, like a cathedral of like repressed sexual desire. Cause like he pulls her in he says, you're a forward wench pulling me into a dark hallway. And then right as he says that, like the light on the basement goes, like turns on. And it's this real, like, again, the use of lighting that Don Siegel does in this movie is, is just fucking fantastic. And then her dad is in the basement. And he comes up and it's just like, oh, this is her dad's house. Even though she's mm-hmm. an adult woman. He's like, yeah. He's like, oh, I hope, our, <laughs> hope my dad doesn't kiss me getting to first
2: base with his daughter. Yeah, you can't be an adult woman um, in a house by yourself. So once you get divorced, you have to go back. Mm-hmm. Another element
0: of this movie that I really appreciated about like a time capsule of the 1950s is that when uh, Catherine and I watched it together, uh Catherine had the really good observation that, like this is the era where you could like actually call your doctor at his house and talk to him. You could harass your doctor at his home yeah. at like any <laughs> given hour of the day and, and he get he might
1: he might come to your home with a black bag <laughs> yeah. and a couple yeah. of <laughs> bottles uh yeah. of pills that are going to make yeah. you feel real good. <laughs>
0: So, like, uh, he's like, all right, uh, he, le- he leaves Becky at, at her father at, at her father's house, like, after the dad's already been up to something nefarious in the basement. And he goes back to the Belichick's house. And this is when they realize that, like, there's something going on with these bodies that, like, uh, they begin to uh, take on a more human uh, look to them, like, as the person they're trying to copy goes to sleep. Here we got, you know, sleep is the mind killer. And he, like, they sort of realize it's like, oh, shit. Like, what if I just left Becky at her house to go to sleep? And we get this scene and it's, it's, it's a motif that is repeated in all three of the movies of like a lover or, or aspiring lover having to like break into the home of his uh, objective uh, lust or desire, like break into his fa- the, her father's house through the basement or like the, the, her current lover's house and like sort of secrete them out of the home to prevent mm. them from being copied while they sleep. So like yeah he uh, he sneaks into Becky's house um, through the basement and he like gets Becky and it's all very it's very 1950s like sexual style you know like, mm-hmm. this is this is how you have sex in movies and then like the next day of course we, we get the great scene of them she's making eggs and coffee for him at his house mm-hmm. and this is a tradition. way of commu- <laughs> this is a way of communicating that sex has happened between two unmarried people.
2: Mm -hmm. When breakfast is getting made. That's right. And um, the Belichicks come in and interrupt them. And they're like, hey, do you mind uh, if we stay here for a few days? And he's like, yes, (laughs) 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 but I guess you can. They, and
0: like, so, like, he, he finds uh, also, like, when he, sne- when he sneaks into Becky's house, he finds the double of Becky in the basement in, like, a box down there. And he has to, like, wake her up and drag her out, like, to break the pod process. And then, like, the next day, here, here's, a, here's a very important feature of all the pod movies. Once you see what's going on and try to report it, Everyone you tell about it, like the police, your neighbors, the local authorities, is already a pod, and they begin the process of gaslighting you. Like there's, That's right. There's an explanation for everything. and you know, You're going reality- to pick up the phone. You're going to pick
1: up the phone. You're going to dial the number for the operator. You're going to dial zero, and the operator is going to say, I'm sorry, all the lines are busy right now. Can I direct you to the head pod person? Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, this is a way of saying reality is socially constructed. And if everyone around you is insane or not human, then you in fact are the alien and insane one,
2: yeah, right. and something I found like really strange with this movie compared to the seventies um one is that um they're a lot less ready to call the police in this movie, like he's like, "Let me call the police and instantly, um the jack character is like, "No, don't, but like in. The '70s one, which we'll get to, Donald Sutherland at every single turn is like, I need to call someone right now. <laughs> I need He's to call an authority const- figure.
1: Uh, do you think maybe that's because I mean, I know we're skipping ahead, but that's because uh, Sutherland himself is a bureaucrat who believes in sort of the the function of yeah,
0: the state, you know? yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, back in the 1950s, like the next day, um, like the the town therapist and police sort of like take them through the night that they just experienced before and and sort of calmly explain to them that like what you thought you saw was actually just, you know, like a bunch of rags in the basement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you right. know?
1: <laughs> just a bunch of um oil and benzene soaked rags in the basement, <laughs> which in the 1950s was totally
2: cool and normal to keep in your basement. It's like it's so cool. This reminded me so much of Psycho, the scene at the end, because like the explanation oh, yeah. makes no sense and leaves so much to be desired. But like in this, it's explicitly so. Like, um, when he's like, no, but I really did see it. And the guy, and the doctor is like, you did. It was there, and you saw it. It was definitely there, but it's not there. It's not real. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, <okay.
0: laughs> and, and like, and like, this whole, like, night, like, day after, like, he goes to his practice. Oh, and it's little Jimmy Grimaldi, and he's there, and he's like, in the waiting room, and he's like, I love you, Mom. I don't feel strange at all anymore. And they're like, yeah. oh, well... Okay, well, I, guess I, him, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess the valium I gave him. I guess the valium I prescribed him uh, <laughs> works, and I, I like how like they like all of them—the Belichick's and uh, Benell and Becky—they're basically all convinced until the next night where they're like having a co- They're having a cookout, you know. They're having some cookout with the friends, and they're like, "Okay, we can just go." That, that we were all got a little bit freaked out, but let's just go back to our normal style routine of drinking ten martinis a night. It, everything's everything's going to be normal oh but wait what's this in the greenhouse it's some gross vaginal seed pod is getting its goop everywhere <laughs> as it foams up and births some unholy fetus it's folks it's foaming and pulsating everywhere and then this is and they're like okay uh, we were right the first time this is <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. not normal <laughs> yeah
1: they're rubbing their eyes and going what <laughs>
0: and then of course like uh, then immediately they're like fuck the local police we've got to call the FBI you know because you've got to inform on your you've got to stitch on your neighbors you call the FBI yeah Mm -hmm.
1: this is kind of this is kind of the thing about this movie because it 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 ends too with the with the psychiatrist calling the FBI and it's just like if if you oh if you only knew what the FBI was doing (laughs) yeah let's call J. Edgar Hoover yeah (laughs) he'll take care of this yeah uh, yeah yeah, let's call uh, let's call the people at Project Bluebird. They'll sort this out right away.
0: <laughs> and then we get the scene of uh, Kevin McCarthy taking a pitchfork to his double and to Becky's double, which is like the the whole the whole pod birthing scene for a movie in 1956 is like really it's pretty gross it's and like and, yeah, and graphic. graphic and it's all it's like, like i said there's foam and goop everywhere it's all it's intensely sexual and then also like as kevin mccarthy's like character gets more into lovecraft mode and just like as es- like his hysteria escalates he just gets dewier and dewier oh, like, yeah the way the yeah, sweat yeah. glistens on him in this movie is just like
1: greasy like, greasy uh fear sweat
0: like seagull captures like the you know like that the barest outline of the way the light, like light hits, like a face in profile in a dark room, and then makes like every bead of sweat like glisten, like sort of constellations in the night sky as yeah, the movie goes beautiful. on. The lighting in this movie is so well it's done; amazing. it's so
1: good. It's kind of actually some shots of a uh, uh, fear sweated-out protagonist reminded me of um, like the best shots of Peter Lorre and um, M in Fritz. Oh yeah. M. Oh yeah.
2: Like absolutely. Like
1: maybe like, maybe one of the first fear sweat. Uh, the depictions on film.
2: So,
0: Hesse, you mentioned Sam Peckinpah as, like, you know, a, a comparable director to Seagull. Sam Peckinpah has a cameo in this yeah, movie. Yeah, he's the filling station guy, yes. right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as Becky and Miles try to get out of town, they, they go to a gas station, and then, of course, the gas station attendant just puts a pod in the trunk of their car, and then, yeah. they're like, okay, well, we're hip to this trick. We've been here yeah. before.
1: Can't fool us.
0: And, like, he goes back to... um uh, like like Becky's dad's house and sort of sneaks up on it and sees like a meeting of the pod people and like they come in and you hear a baby crying and they say, is the baby asleep yet? Not now, but soon there will be no more tears. And like, oh my God. the whole, yeah, the whole
1: town is in on part. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like you said, it's over before it begins. It's there. It's a it's a losing battle from the start. So,
0: it's like, mm-hmm. you know,
1: like, all their sanity points will be gone. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And like you know, they're the like for a, they, they have every reason to assume that they're the last two human beings in the town of Santa Mira, and they're on the run. They make it to his medical office and sort of spend the night there. But thank God they have a huge supply of uh, of emetic, medical, pharmaceutical yeah. grade amphetamines <laughs> to keep them awake. I have a new interpretation,
1: like a third way, maybe a third way of looking at this film. It's like, is it anti-McCarthyite? Is it anti-communist? No, it's pro-amphetamine, and it is about the impending. um sort of like culture war between uh, coming in the 1960s between mellow california like valium and downers and east coast pure fucking chemical speed
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) and uh there's a scene where um becky and miles look out the window at this like uh sort of like normal morning scene of like strangers arriving on a bu- at the bus station and they're sort of immediately set upon by the police and like i said this we talked about this funhouse mirror of like norman rockwell's america and he says to them like in his medical practice he's seen how people have their humanity have their humanity drain away and it all happens so slowly that like they don't seem to mind but their hearts harden to the world and like they they cut themselves off from other people and i just thought it was like yeah like it's a very um it's it's a very profound, like, statement about, like, the ways in which people, like, already turn themselves into unfeeling automatons just as a process of, like, living and getting mm-hmm. by yeah.
2: in the world. And they tell them, like, in all the movies, they tell them, like, um it'll be fine. Like, you can keep your car. You can keep, like, yeah. your job. You can just yeah. do what you do normally. You're still
1: going to be in love with your wife uh in a different kind of love, like a pod. Yeah. Well, pod. well like,
0: level you know i mean who, who needs love when you just have like uh you know wedded domestic bliss where no one loves or hates anyone it's also yeah. like a pretty good solution yeah and <laughs> yeah. a
1: pure powerful communion of the the, the hive mind yes mm-hmm.
0: and then okay so like they're in they've 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 Sent the Belichick's out to get help, and like he hears what he thinks is his friend Jack Belichick in the hallway, and he's like, "Oh, Jack, thank God you're here!" And like, opens up the door, but no, of course, he's already brought the pod authorities to begin the Mm -hmm. the pod process. On like the Belichick's have already been taken. Yeah, pod police are are there, and you know, like then he like sort of uh, the the shrink, the doctor, hips him to sort of like he gives him the pod pitch, and he says, "Less than a month ago, Santa Mira was a town with nothing but problems, but then." A solution came from outer space. Uh, it took root, and now it's yeah. But the, the immortal science of Marxism-Leninism have taken root, and we'll be yeah. I mean, finally we can solve all the problems of Santa Mira and the world. And you'll be you'll be reborn into an untroubled world where there's no need for love. And he says, love, desire, ambition, faith, life is so easy without them. And it's like. Well, I don't I already don't have ambition or faith, so I guess like losing an extra two wouldn't be too fucking terrible. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah, not bad. Well, I um I love like also when they first see the pod and it's foaming up, they're like, "What the hell? What what is this?" And um the first two guesses are maybe it's atomic radiation. Maybe it's from space. And it's like, oh, it was option two. <laughs> just the two, the two most
1: 1950s uh, guesses possible. Yeah. <laughs> I, just wanted to, I just wanted to mention that uh, the town that this is set in, Santa Mira, Will, do you know what other films are set in this fictional California town?
0: No, I don't. E.T. The
1: Extraterrestrial. Okay. <laughs> the television series Airwolf. <laughs> <laughs> and... Halloween three. Oh fuck yes! Whoa. All set in the fictional town of Santa Mira.
0: Wait, uh, Santa Mira isn't like the Connell Coughlin, Coughlin uh, like if Irish wizard robot town, is it? Uh, I believe it is. Oh, Okay, <laughs> <laughs> so this is just this is just the, like Santa Mira is the template for all horrifying things to happen in California. Yeah, the, right. and Airwolf and helicopter sick <laughs> and helicopter and scenes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, an ET too is also a demon. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Yeah, Bad guy. Real bad guy. They should have put that thing down. (laughs) Um, So, uh, like, you know, but but you know, like they're they're going to they're gonna like uh, give them drugs to put them to sleep to counteract all the uppers they've been taking. But you know, it being a medical practice, it comes in uh, handy again as he like sort of uh, manages to palm some syringes and like they plunge it into their the the pod police and make their (laughs) escape. And now here we get to another very important part of any pod uh, movie is the scene where, the, where the, the, the remaining human characters have to pretend to be communist NPCs by walking right. along the street and not, not displaying any emotion. And they're like, yes, it is nice now. We are all <laughs> on the same side. And then uh, this is like almost immediately, uh, Becky screws it up because she sees a dog almost get hit by a truck. And she's like, oh no! But yeah. no, <laughs> loving your pets, that's, that's an old concept that we need that's, to, we need to that's evolve past. That's yeah. verboten and popular. Yeah, they're world.
2: walking around like, things haven't been the same since the mayor is missing. You should go to the tavern and talk to Jessica to get your next quest. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So then, like, you know,
0: uh, they, they, they hit the air raid siren in Santa Mira, and I'm like, what is this, Friday evening in Brooklyn? What is this, my neighborhood? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, like, the, the whole town starts chasing them. And like you know, he carries her up into the hills and carries her into a mine. You know, Dan. Like here's another another instance of like you know, uh, uh, sort of pre modern California's yeah roots yeah in the, in the extractive industries. Yeah, that's like you it. Know, like
1: they're in the they're in the bones of the earth. They're in the uh, yeah. they're they're in the bones of the earth, and they're. Uh, You know, the individuals that shaped California, that uh, wrenched it uh, into colonial control, those those like individuals uh, like gold miners. And we don't we don't need those guys anymore. What we need now is we need good pod people. Um, who are going to bumble around and say NPC dialogue and buy cars that are the size of like an Abrams
2: tank? Mm-hmm. <laughs> strong, <laughs> strong men create good times. Good times create pod people. Pod people, pod create, people create utopia easy times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No,
0: this isn't a cycle. Yeah, <laughs> this, this, this is not the only way to break out of the hard times soft men cycle is by converting all of humanity into, <laughs> into pod pods. People. Yeah, yeah. To become exactly. pods, all men become pod people. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> love, hate, hard, soft—it doesn't matter. Yeah. We, have, we have the gift of shared consciousness, which That's really right. would, I'm sorry, solve every problem that humanity <laughs> yeah, has. Really? Would. Um, and like, yeah, like the climax of this movie takes place uh, basically in a mining tunnel, and like at this point, I, I just everything is glistening. Oh, Kevin yeah. mm-hmm. McCarthy is wet as hell. They, they hide like under some planks as like the town runs through the tunnel. Um, they're they're wet as hell. And then they would be like, he sort of uh, he, like leave, leaves her in the tunnel to like uh, go check out what he hears is some like pleasant singing wafting through the mine. And they're like, she's like, oh, it's good to know we're not the only ones left who know what love is. Dude, never check the- out the singing. Like you don't yeah. need human.
1: <laughs> I, I'm a musician. You don't need human emotion to get on stage and play a song and sing it like you just make yeah. it, man.
0: and he leaves her in the tunnel to go check it out but what he finds is a scene of just pod farming it's the grimaldi (laughs) farm is now like the uh the ground zero for pod production again
1: (laughs) part of the acceleration of california as as like the vanguard of capitalism you've got of uh, of industrial agriculture yeah the frontier extractive mining processes and then and then once the gold ran out it's just like well, we have all these explosives, and we can clear this land. And uh, we'll, we'll, we've got some—we've got some people here who know how to do irrigation. Let's go.
0: I, I just love the idea. He's emerging from the mine, thinking that, like this, that the, the the dulcet hymn that he's hearing waft through the hills. It's like, oh, there's still some sign that humanity has left. But no, it's like. It's like a pod radio station. It's yeah. like, hey, this is Casey Kasub. You're listening to WKGKR, the only pod radio station, counting down your, all your formerly favorite songs to lull humanity into a state of oh blissful oblivion. God, if, if this was real and
1: in 1956, California was completely subsumed by pod people, it would mean that. The fucking boomer psychedelic hippie rock movement would have never happened, and they would have gotten to, they would have gotten to techno decades earlier.
0: <laughs> Once again, an argument for the pods. Pro pod. So uh, then he he returns to the tunnel and finds Becky, and this, this is like my favorite scene in the movie, is that like he picks her up and kisses her, but in the kiss he realizes that she's. Her soul is already dead and her bodies have become hosts for an alien cosmic form of life. And we have this like shot reverse shot of like sexual panic and hysteria as he pulls away from Becky's face and this close up on his face as the horror freezes his soul as the woman he formerly loved is now dead. And a like a a counterfeit has replaced. Mm hmm.
2: And he says in the voiceover, I've never been more scared in my life than when I kissed that woman. <laughs>
0: yeah, never felt that much. The fear. virgin
2: non pod person versus the Chad Pod person. Yeah. <laughs> it's like when and you're kissing me, you're
1: kissing all of us.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's you know, what he's so
1: that's what he's afraid
0: of. Yeah. When you when you have sex with a pod person, you're not just having sex with a pod person, you're having sex with every person on the planet. Oh yeah, you're having sex with pod people. <laughs> yeah, um, and then like so a he's podly fuel. Up. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Dr. Binel is of course geeked up on like a, a handful of bennies that he's just swallowed, and and facing the death of his his lover, he's like wet. He looks at math, and he hits the highway in like in, in full froth, and then we get one of the one of my favorite all-time favorite movie freakouts and meltdowns as he just yeah. hits the highway screaming, you're next! You're in danger! You're, you're in danger! For us. <laughs> yes.
2: They're here already. They're here already. Like he- you're next. <laughs>
0: And he sees the trucks that have been loaded up with pods that are being shipped out all over the country. And he's like, you fools, you fools, they're in danger. And then we get the completely tacked on phony ending. (laughs) Yeah. So like, you know, we we mentioned the movie starts out being told in flashback as he's like, you know, uh, like doctors are like, who's check out this crazy guy we picked up on the highway screaming at people (laughs) about pods Mm -hmm. taking away our humanity. And then like at the very end it's back to him and he's told this whole story and he's like I'm telling you I'm not crazy. And the doctors are like, sure, sure, okay. Like what are they doing?
1: They're putting their finger beside their temple and <laughs> swirling it around. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but like a- as they're about getting ready to send him off to the funny farm, they're like, you know, bring in a body from like a, a, a there's, oh, there's been an accident on the highway, and they're like, Yeah. A truck overturned, but you know it's it's the darndest thing. It's they've been full of these these pods, and I ain't never seen nothing <laughs> like them. And they're like, "Where was that truck coming from?" And they're like, "Oh, Santa Mira, California." And then they all look back at Kevin McCarthy, and they're like, "Ah!" Oh. And then they're like, "Okay, get me the FBI." And then like they they call the government, they get through, and it's like we're reassured that like he he has been believed, and that like you know the U.S. government will. Will, they will take action on the pod problem in Southern California. <laughs> yeah.
1: the, US, the, the U.S. government is about to drop the
2: same shit they're dropping on Korea uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: on, on Santa
2: Maria. They're, they're about to go full Korea on Santa Maria. They're going to go. They're going to Agent Orange, California, which we
0: see, which we see literally in the finale of the Abel Ferrara body snatchers. Oh yeah, movie, oh we yeah, <laughs> get to. yeah, yeah, but, which is um, really would I,
1: incredible. What I, love, what I love
0: about this obviously phony tacked on ending that just like the movie was originally not supposed to have any uh, flashback and the movie was literally supposed to, like the last shot of the movie is Kevin McCarthy's face screaming on the highway going, you're next, you're next. And of course, the pod people in the studio probably thought that people would, might be, I don't know, disturbed by that. Yeah. So they tack on this totally <laughs> phony ending that like reassures everyone that like it's okay. But what I love about that is that it fits in the movie perfectly that like the pods have already won. There's no way that you can get people to believe it, like how the danger they're in, because they're just like the movie just totally shifts emphasis at the end. They're like, don't worry, it's all okay now.
2: Go to sleep. Go back to sleep. Go back to sleep. The government has this under control. I think the last words of the movie are, hello, FBI. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I also love that... um, They, it all failed for the pod people because the truck overturned, and that just goes to show you, even when they're pod people, women still can't drive. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
3: The function of all life is survival. Sleep, sleep, sleep. From deep space, Sleep. sleep.
1: The seed is planted. Sleep. Sleep. terror
3: grows Matthew! 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 Like the others!
2: Elizabeth, wake up! Get you when you sleep! Sit up!
1: Invasion of the Body Snatchers It's got no detail, no character It's unformed
2: All of a sudden they're growing like parasites Is it contagious? People are being duplicated How do you know my name? I didn't
1: tell you my name. I can't find anything in here that looks like a body. My side's nosebleed.
3: It looked right at me. You're looking at it as if it was human. It was not human.
2: Now, the classic fear begins to grow. (laughs) We're being cornered. In a modern masterpiece of science fiction. They're barricading the street. Invasion of the body statues.
0: So that brings us to the next... Uh, the, the next in the cycle of Body Snatchers movies, the uh, 1978 version by Philip Kaufman, oh, which man. is a very, it's a great remake. It's so good. And it, like in this movie, it, it sort of, it refocuses from like the small town America to a fully realized sense of urban paranoia because it's mm-hmm. in the middle of San Francisco, this like bustling urban area. And it really becomes more a movie about like the end of the counterculture as I mentioned, but it also develops considerably the Body Snatchers theme of therapy being evil. Oh, yeah. uh, Oh, yeah. And in a very prophetic way, this is a movie about weaponizing therapy speak to gaslight and kill people with
2: (laughs) this movie about neoliberalism it's about like literally
0: it's
1: about the (laughs) libs it is about the libs and it's about the failure of uh the failure like the failure of imagination and will of the of uh the hippie generation to adapt beyond introspection like after you've after you travel to the cosmic horror inside yourself the vast <laughs> howling fucking gulf, the the birthplace of Azathoth with mad <laughs> piping inside yourself, whether it's through fucking encounter therapy or because you did a heroic dose of mushrooms and lived on a commune for six months. There's nothing there. There's nothing and everything there. And it is a horrible place to be. And the only way out is to embrace collective action at the
0: dawn of the 1980s, purchasing shit. Just yeah. fucking give in. <laughs> and I think it's so fascinating because in, in the 1950s one, it is very much like the, the, the fear of the pod people is that they take away your individuality and you become this kind of emotionless automaton that fits into this kind of like frictionless like social organism. And I think it's fascinating that in the late 1970s, the version of this movie, it's very much about how people's obsession with individualism and self-centered focus on yeah, like uh, therapy and self-improvement, is really the vector through which the pods take you over. It is, it is like it is too much individuality that is the weapon, through, that is the wedge through which the pods have like robbed us of our humanity. It's the delivery mm-hmm. system, and and
1: the people in it. You get the impression, or at least I did, that the people in it secretly yearn to be subsumed. They oh, want. They want their agony. The agony of self exploration has to end at some point.
2: And and Sutherland keeps calling Doctor Kibner over every single time anything happens. He calls this like it's so funny. Ac- this like piece of shit doctor like, psychiatrist. Uh, yeah, who we- is? Uh, we'll get into it. I guess. Yeah, will get
0: into it. Uh, so, so this movie stars uh, Donald Sutherland, and like I mean. If it's a movie with Donald Sutherland in the seventies, like you're watching good shit. It's an this,
1: incredible role for him. This too. guy's
0: batting average it was so high. Yeah, it was so high. Uh, it's Donald Sutherland and uh, Brooke Adams is the uh, the love interest. Uh, she it was also in David Cronenberg's The Dead Zone, and then the Belichick family is played by a very young Jeff Goldblum, who is so very funny in this movie. So yes. very
2: hot. Like, the, one of the hottest people ever in a movie is Jeff Goldblum in this movie. He, yeah, And the he, woman and,
0: from Alien, I believe. Yeah, Alien. Uh, Veronica yeah. Cartwright is, yeah. uh, his, is Jeff Goldblum's wife. And, of course, she was in— if, you, if you're looking for a woman to go freak out mode in a horror movie, Veronica Cartwright is a great choice. Mm-hmm. If you want to see her, like, crying and hysterical, she does it great in Alien. And also, as a child actor, she was in Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds.
1: Oh that's right. Oh shit. Her delivery of the line Oh God when uh the, the um when the alien bursts out of John John Hurt's chest is one of the best deliveries of a
2: oh, yeah. horror movie line ever. It's so good. She's And great. a little fun fact, her character in Alien is canonically transgender because it says really? it for one second on the screen in aliens. When they're showing all the like crew member descriptions, oh right, they're
0: like little like uh, yeah, the the crew dossier, yeah,
2: yeah. And um, if you pause it, it says it like in the description, like born male but converted, and then like really, it just keeps oh, going, yeah, shit. yeah. And James Cameron notice. just added that for no reason.
0: <laughs> Amazing, I love it.
2: God, Cameron. Um,
0: and then and then and then finally, you mentioned Dr. Bennell in a great great bit of like stunt casting like based on the perception of the actor and the character he played. Leonard Nimoy oh, is so just good. so perfect in this movie as the as the most evil therapist <laughs> ever oh, yeah. portrayed in any movie. Like, like he is Dr. Ben, uh, sorry, Dr uh, what the fuck is it Leonard Nimoy's Dr Kibner. Name? Dr. Dr Kibner Kidner. is 10 times more horrifying and evil than Hannibal Lecter is as a psychiatrist. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, just a scene where he accosts Goldblum outside and says, I need you to stop right now. And then yeah. he's like, How'd that turns, make you feel?
2: Yeah, turns to Brooke Adams <laughs> after like slapping Jeff Goldblum and is like, Yeah, did you like that? What did you like? How are you
1: feeling <laughs> about that?
2: <What>? It's amazing,
1: <laughs> Fucking amazing.
0: Uh, So, like, like uh, I really like the opening credits of the Kaufman Invasion of the Body Snatchers because of, like, a little bit more money and, like, special effects technology. There's a great opening credit sequence, like, you know, uh, depicting these alien spores. Space goop. Mm Floating through the galaxy and then, like, taking root on planet Earth. And, like, you know, like, they take root in the soil and their goop gets on plants and they begin, like... To spread these sort of like uh, cum like cobwebs all over plants in San Francisco and like create these like little, little, little flowers that are sort of unique. And then the first scene is Brooke Adams and she sort of finds one and she's like, oh, this is neat. I'm going to bring it home with me. And I don't know if you guys caught this, but the unbelievable cameo that's never mentioned or referred to at all in this movie in the very beginning of the movie which has yes. Robert Duvall showing up as a priest in a full cassock on a, on a swing, swing set swing. with a child. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that scene essentially sets the tone for the film. And just like, because the, I, I want to say like the sound, the soundtrack is incredible to this movie. I think the high a lot pitch of the noise, high like, pitch noise, a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, synth stuff and the sound effects in the film are, uh, I think it's an ARP 2600. Um, one of the classic spooky sci-fi synths. Um, but the foley, or the, just the sound in the swing scene, is so high pitched and so jarring and so unpleasant, and and that just keeps keeps coming for the rest of the movie. Oh yeah, it really. My note, it's like
2: right there. The I had to turn down my TV when it came to that scene. I was like, oh shit.
0: And okay, so like, and the, the Brooke Adams character is like, we you know we see her. She brings home this this cool new flower that she discovered on the street that seems to be popping up everywhere in San Francisco, and we see a little like a. Uh, like a little keyhole glimpse of like the domestic life of her and the, her boyfriend that she lives her with.
1: absolute piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what is he, football or basketball? Basketball. He's a Warriors fan. He was yeah. one of the few he's actual Warriors fans before
0: Steph Curry got involved. The worst <laughs> fucking
1: guy. He's got, he's got headphones, which I he's guess is like, a to, new He's listening new to TV thing. with
0: headphones. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. what I like so, about this is that it shows that like, even before he becomes a pod, he's like, uh, uh, he, like he's listening to the fucking uh, the basketball game with headphones. He's like technology, sort of separating us from other people, cutting them off. And he, like he doesn't
2: even want to have sex with his girlfriend because he's like, I gotta watch the game. You know? mm-hmm. It's the playoffs, babe. And then until she starts reading about flowers, and then he's like, Come on, let's go. And she's like, No, I'm trying to read about flowers. <laughs> yeah, cool guy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but just like, you know, like this sort of like hints about like, you know, in in the late 1970s like all these sort of ways in which people are already kind of tuning each other out mm-hmm. and not and not really like connecting with one another and like not really valuing like human relationships. And uh the Donald Sutherland character, the, the Miles Bennell character is changed from being a small town doctor to a San Francisco like uh, health department health inspector, inspector. Mm-hmm. and I, we were watching this. I watched this with Chris last night, and he liked it. Like in the first scene, where he goes into the restaurant to find the uh, the rat turd in the in the, in the, in the snooty ass French
1: <laughs> restaurant. Yeah. The, the the humiliation of the snooty ass French uh, yes. restaurant owner is so yeah. good.
0: And like I, I like uh, Chris said that he's sort of like a like a Philip noir, Philip Marlowe sort of noir health inspector. <laughs> Yeah, and there's a there's a he has j- the coat an, and everything.
1: It's an amazing joke where uh, he's pulling he's pulling a uh, a piece of rat shit out of uh, like a booyah base or something, and he's like, and he's holding it with tweezers, and he's like, "What is this?" And the French chef is like, "It is a keper." He's like, "It's a rat, it's a rat turd," and he's like, "The French chef is like, it is a keper." <laughs>
0: And he's like, oh, is it a caper? Why don't you eat it in front of me then to I, prove it's a caper?
1: Yeah. I don't know. It's some cheap heat, but like very good joke.
0: Yeah. So, you know, he he works with Brooke Adams at the health department. And then like it, it, when uh, Brooke Adams, like he brings the, the, the flower home. And like the next morning, like her boyfriend is like he's already awoken. He's like he's in a full suit. And he's like he's got meetings to up. go to. So many meetings. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And something's off here. And we get the beginning of like uh, a motif that's returned to over and over again in this movie and the Ferrara one as well of garbage trucks. Yes. And, yeah. like, and people, like what, what the movie portrays is that more and more you see this like sort of fibrous, hairy, like sort of like big hairball waste that people are like individually taking out. Like the, it's like bin day and they're taking it out to meet the garbage man and dispose of the remains of their formerly human body. And, like, there's this fleet of garbage trucks canvassing the city that are just filled. It's, like, you know, a definite, I think, like, you know, reference to the Holocaust of, like these like huge mounds of like hair and like, like ashes Mm -hmm. and like the Mm -hmm. remains of like human beings. Like I said, that this, this like this, this silent Holocaust is taking place just at the periphery of everyone's perception. And like the, and that like what's carrying it out are all the like banal features of like ordinary urban existence, like the garbage truck and like, you know, like, or the, the, just like people, just like the, the, the people going on with their business that you edit out of your, uh, perception is like carrying out this like ghastly, monstrous, like, uh, conversion of, of humanity, yeah. Because they of, never
2: see it, they never see it, like, the characters yeah. never see it explicitly. It's kind of
1: referenced too, and um, or maybe not referenced because maybe these films are contemporaneous, but like, uh, in David Cronenberg's Rabbit, Rabbit, yeah, the yeah, <laughs> Rabbit, right? Like, the, the one of the most bleak, bleak of the bleakest of the bleak 70s endings, you know, just the, the, like. Similarly, upping the cosmic horror factor by by uh sort of depersonalizing the body yeah- enti- entirely
2: <laughs> yeah, and earlier in rabbit when they see um they're pulling into Toronto because the like pandemic of rabbitness is happening, and they see they have to stop for a row of like forty garbage trucks in a row that are going, and they're just like, huh, all right." <laughs>
0: All right, well, uh, the, the scene I want to talk about um, early in this movie that I find so funny is um, that, like, it's very clear that Donald Sutherland has the hots for Brooke Adams' character. And we talk about, like, the uses of therapy in this movie is that, like, she's experiencing some sort of domestic crisis uh, that, like, you know, she, she, she believes that her boyfriend or the man she lives with has, is, is not himself. And we I just like we get the impression that Donald Sutherland has been planting the seeds for probably years or months now to break up this relationship and just slide right on in Mm because there's a great scene where like she spends the whole day following her boyfriend and like seeing him go about his like clandestine Todd meetings around the city with strangers and she's like getting freaked out and she goes over to her her work friend's house. Mm-hmm. And like, Sutherland's there, and he's like, Where he's cooking a delicious ethnic meal of stir fry. <laughs> he's, I, I love the detail of the stir fry because what, like, the meal he's cooking is like celery, ginger, and like a r- barely cut bell pepper just in a wok. And she's I just, like, wanna, this is delicious. Can I, I, I just
1: want to, this reminded me of my parents so much, like, that generation. Um, expressing like I think I you can make I mean I, w- I am making fun of it now but expressing in a positive way their acceptance of other cultures, but it's just <laughs> fucking garbage food. Like, yeah, he's taken a whole head of celery and just thrown it in a walk with like Crisco or whatever. It's like. yeah. And then they're sitting, eating out of like a uh, Raku pottery in the backyard. And this is supposed but, to signal that this is, this guy is a worldly man. You know,
0: he is, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. he's sensitive. So like it, it, he, he, he feeds her like a Mikey miles meal. And she's like, wow, this <laughs> is great. <laughs> this is what, it, but he immediately starts saying, like as you said, Hesse, like at every step of his dawning consciousness of this horror that's unfolding around him and like the people involved in his life. At every step of the way, his solution to these problems are talking to his good friend, the the pop therapist, <laughs> Dr. David Kibner Doctor Leonard yeah, Spock, <laughs> played by Doctor Spock, Doctor Kibner and he he tells Brooke Adams, he's like, no, he's like. You know, don't think of him as a therapist. He could really he could he could rule out a lot of things for you, like, for instance, is he having an affair? is Has he become gay? <laughs> has yeah, he, has yeah. he become gay? Has he become <laughs> has, republican? Has he yeah. become a Republican? You know
1: <laughs> I like to think that people were spontaneously becoming gay in the nineteen seventy eight
0: yeah, like
1: like it was the thing
0: that happened but like it's just very clear that like therapy and the language around therapy is for the Donald Sutherland character just another strategy to like uh fuck his work friend and break up her relationship
2: <laughs> and i think also he's like um a total clout chaser too because he says um not only does he say don't think of him as a therapist he says don't think of him as a celebrity therapist because also he's <laughs> a celebrity therapist like Guru. He's like the Jordan Peterson of his time basically. Yeah. <laughs> he, yes. He really exactly. is. I mean like yeah. there,
0: there's a, there's a lot of similarities between uh Dr. Peterson and Dr. Kibner. Yeah. You know, cuz he's always just like he's like uh like are, do you, he's like in, in the encounter scene in the encounter therapy scene he's like yeah. uh, you know, do you, do you think your lover is an alien pod or do you just not want to commit because you know, <laughs> that that takes responsibility and the family unit's all shot to hell. <laughs> That's
1: right, which is You know, which is a through line between these three movies. You've got uh, Mm -hmm. the the working nuclear family where an adult woman becomes a child again because she gets divorced and her uh, father is mad that she has a gentleman caller. You have the sort of disillusion of uh relationships in the 1970s and then we get to the basically the the nuclear holocaust of Abel Ferrer's depiction of family yeah. in the, in the <laughs> 1990s <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: uh like you know we get the the very funny uh book party scene where they go to Dr. Kibner's book, book party. And then we oh, first meet so Jeff good. Goldblum's character is so funny. Yeah. Cause he's like ranting against what a hack Kibner is. And then people yeah. are like, how could you say that about such an intelligent man? And he's like, he knocks off one of these books every six months. He's like, it takes me six months to write a single sentence
2: sometimes. It's so funny. And he goes like, wh- <laughs> She's like, why, why is that so great? And he's like, why am I even talking to you? I wasn't yeah. even talking to you. And <laughs> <laughs> that scene, that's that
1: whole scene. One thing I picked up on watching it again is that it's all, Altman esque overlapping dialogue, and, and oh, yeah, it kind of keeps shifting. And there's a mirror in play, so a, like yeah, there's, there's a literal mm-hmm. funhouse mirror, a literal funhouse mirror, mirror. Yeah, it's extremely disorienting and very cool. It's like I, I loved it.
0: Um, but like in, in leading up to that, there's a lot of scenes of both Brooke Adams and then later in the movie, Donald Sutherland walking around the streets of San Francisco going about their daily business. And Kaufman is so good here with, like, the the editing and, like you said, the the foley and, like, the sounds of urban life creating this sense of, like, escalating urban paranoia Mm -hmm. and the idea that, like, a very familiar setting can become totally alien and strange to you. Like, Brooke Adams says at one point, it's just like, I've lived in this city my whole life and walking around it today, it felt like everything was different. Like, the people, like, everything had, something had changed and you can't quite put your finger on it. And like, I don't know, like th- this is really what like living in New York City felt like during COVID, you know, like yeah, this idea yeah, that yeah. like, like an environment that I've spent my entire life in, like the streets I've walked up and down on my whole life, I felt like I was, you know, like, like a glove that all of a sudden everything looks the same, but there's a feeling that something profoundly unsettling has happened. And that like, that, that everyone is in on it. Yeah. Like I said, that everyone might be in on it, but just that the streets themselves feel different to you. And this idea that like everyone around you that you take for granted is potentially some sort of like vector for disease or contagion. And it's yeah, just like, it's
1: this sense of uncanniness, you know, like like the eerie. And then if you're a complete psycho and you live in San Francisco in twenty twenty three, you take it to its logical conclusion and you're like, we should bring eighteen eighties style lynch mobs back.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is really funny seeing this movie because it is such a San Francisco movie, thinking about how they might remake Invasion of the Body Snatchers in San Francisco in 2023, because I maintain (laughs) that it would be like, it's, it's either impossible to do because everyone is already so thoroughly fucking not human, or it could be a movie about how, like, uh, like the homeless contagion
2: is what spreads pod yeah. people or whatever. Harry it's and like, his dog. Like it's about Harry yeah. and his dog. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's about the, it's <laughs> about the human-faced dog man.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um. I had a I had a
1: thought that like one very financially successful way you could reboot this film for 2023 is that um you you take the sort of sequel, the the sequel films um ability to be interpreted by two oppositional political sides and you have the pods basically bimbify people. yes so so on one hand you'd have everybody would go see it because some people would be like yas you know bimbo let's fucking go and then other people would be like this is a this is a warning this is a warning for our society (laughs) and our children and it would make it would make so much fucking money it'd be amazing Mm -hmm.
0: but yeah like uh so we get you know, we've we've seen this stuff that happened in the first movie. Like they discover a body, and the Bel the Belichick's are no longer a nice suburban couple. They run a mud bath in San Francisco the family, now. The good old yeah. family mud bath. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, I like in that scene the one guy who's reading a book in the mud bath. It's like what the fuck? The, <laughs> you know, that weird mud Russian, all over the
1: pages. Yeah, kind of seems like a like a weird like white Russian emigre kind of you know. Like. Yeah,
0: and. Uh, There's like that weird guy who's pitching Veronica Cartwright on all the new agey like books he's reading. He's like, you must read Worlds in Collision by Belikov.
1: Yeah, that's that's the guy I'm thinking of. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, like like you must read uh, Morozov's theory of missing time about how Charlemagne isn't real.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But what I like about that is that like in the San Francisco of the '70s, like and people are already hyped to believe like extraterrestrial origins of human civilization and consciousness and like yeah because the, she's like
2: i already read it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah yeah
0: it's chariots of the gods era right like yeah oh yeah and you know like i mean like the, the the events of the movie like they they play out in pretty much the same way as they discover the duplicates of themselves and then they realize that like everyone is already turned against them but there's just some great stuff with Leonard Nimoy as a Doctor Kibner, in which at one point, right before he's about to put them to sleep and uh, convert them into pod people, he says, "Don't be trapped by old concepts. Yes, <laughs> free mean, your mind." Such,
2: such a chilling line, and I love, I love that. Um, there's one incredible scene where um, Brooke Adams and like Sutherland has absconded with Brooke Adams, and um, much in the same way as in the first movie, and. The police are called because they have evidence of the pod people. And um, he saw Brooke Adams' pod person at um, the husband's house. And um, basically, it's like this incredible, like, almost Zalowski-like scene of, like, a camera, like, whipping between people. And it's like, the lens is way too wide, but it's yeah. going right up in people's faces. And um, everyone's, like, very paranoid. And... Um, like, that scene was amazing. And I also love that, like, you can never... You can't really tell whether or not Nimoy is, has turned or if he's just, like, a total useful idiot for the pod people at this point. <laughs> yeah. Because, or that's
1: just, like, his fucking affect. Like, he's yeah. so up his own ass, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly.
0: I, okay, here's a, here's a very important question about the Leonard Nimoy character in this movie. A at what point was he became a pod or was he like always, was he always a pod or was he like accidentally working on behalf of the pod agenda because of his stupid encounter therapy ass the bullshit, but I, you're even more important than that. What the fuck is going on with that weird like half leather glove that he's wearing the entire movie? Yeah, that movie? glove. The
2: glove. Is I was just so like, like, is this crazy. is this guy?
1: Is he a falconer?
0: Like, yeah, he, is it's he like, an it archer? It seems like something you'd <laughs> be for archery, but wouldn't like. <laughs> yeah. But it's not on his palm. Like, if it was archery, the leather strap would go over the inside of your hand and not the outside. It's just this weird, yeah. like a, a character detail that, like, I mean, maybe it was just like that was in fashion in the late 1970s, but for me, it just like screams uh, New Agey creepo. Yeah, like, why why do you have this little like set, like swath of leather on like half of your hand?
2: It's like when you're a kid and you're like it's cool to wear gloves, so I'm going to wear gloves all the time. Yeah. <laughs> literally. It's, he's like
1: it's called an affectation. Yeah. <laughs> I really enjoyed the um Donald Sutherland having to destroy his own disgusting clone. Like the goop the goop factor in this film is is just super super amped up. Uh Donald Sutherland's Mewling the like giant man baby clone is ah oh, it's just it's so fucking gross. It is very Lovecraftian the the birthing of his clone from uh the giant pod.
2: It's so sick. I love how like it blooms out like a flower first, and then like the then, middle of the flower opens and like yeah, like the yeah. head
0: literally crowns like a like a like like
2: neighbor.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's not unlike, it's almost like like the dog scene in The Thing. It's almost that upsetting, you know? Uh,
2: It really reminded me of that scene so much. And like the the horrifying, like, baby, like, adult baby-like face when it first comes out. The sound design,
1: just this gloopy sound design. There's so much, like, uh, it's like water breaks. And then, oh, God, fuck.
2: And um, again, like, after Kibner is, like, Kibner tells them, like, all right, like I'll tell the mayor, like something's going on, it's fine, here's some Valium. <laughs> like, um, and they, Brooke Adams and uh, Veronica Cartwright are like, We're being poisoned by these little flower pods, and we can't tell because, like, of all the poison in the air and all yeah. of the like fast food that we eat and stuff. Yeah, that I th- was very interesting.
1: <laughs> that was amazing because there, there is kind of a, like, I remember watching the, this last go round and 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 really thinking about like, it just perfectly encapsulates like the wrong turn that like a lot of uh, sort of current conspiracy like post Q people take where they're like, okay, we know something is wrong. They're ninety nine percent right about it, and then they take a detour and it's about underground military yeah. bunkers. You know, and or, you're being or, turned into a femboy by yeah. You're, <laughs> yeah. you're being you're, uh, there is a chemical spill. Uh, it's because of gross mismanagement by your government, but what the chemicals are doing are um, making you a beautiful woman.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They've they replaced all our damn Bud Light with gay Bud Light. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, uh, and um, I think as to the question whether when Kibner turns, I think I don't think he's ever a pod person. I think he's just <laughs> acting like that, and the pod people are like, oh, this guy clearly is already turned. <laughs> and he's, no, he's just like so yeah. he's been he's Perfect been like, quizzling.
0: like I, I, I love that because like I mentioned that there's an important trope in all the Body Snatchers movies where like the, 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 the remaining human characters have to like act affectless and blank as they walk along the street and not like betray any emotion like Kipner has been doing that but just like unaware for so long <laughs> that yeah, that's, it's just he's he's like he's already deceiving the pod people
2: around him without being aware of it because <laughs> he's a therapy creep that's a point where um jordan peterson and him differ because jordan peterson would like um, he, he would start s- crying immediately yeah he was would too see the banjo guy, guy and just start would, bawling his eyes out like
1: he would see the human face dog and uh yeah he'd start weeping he'd be, yeah he'd be like this is <laughs> this is post-structuralism
0: <laughs> um how do you how do you both view um the philip kaufman as a director and like uh because you know, I haven't really talked about him yet, and I guess out of Don Siegel and Abel Ferrari, he's a little bit of the wild card, as like perhaps like slightly less revered than those two, at least certainly in my own personal taste. But like a, an extremely talented director, I guess his other probably his best known movie is The Right Stuff, which is a based on the Tom Wolfe book, is a really beautiful movie about the uh, Mercury program. Um, that I, I, th- I think like his style is very kind of uh, sensual and kind of uh, poetic in a way but like how do you both see Philip Kaufman's directorial style and like sort of point of view contributing to the this 70s iteration of the, the body snatchers
2: you know what this is like the only movie of his that I've seen I think you um, haven't seen uh, Henry and June the uh,
1: extremely horny movie with Fred Ward that he wrote with his own wife <laughs>
2: Whoa. <laughs> oh, by the way,
0: Philip Kaufman's wife plays the woman at the book party who's convinced that her husband is already a pod and that who, who d- David Kibner uh, like sort of makes in a really gross scene like makes her like touch him and they're like, no, yeah. this is nice. Look, you're holding hands with him now. You love him. And she's like terrified. She's like shaking yeah. with
2: fear. <laughs> And there's and a room like, full of so people. Great? Everyone applauds him. <laughs>
0: like, and then Brooke Adams is like, no, wait, like, I, 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 like, I understand what this woman's talking about. And he's going, not now, not now. I'm treating this woman. <laughs> <laughs> Coffin, fuck, Coffin also directed
1: another extremely horny movie from 2000 called Quills uh, starring oh, Jeffrey well, yes. Rush as the Marquis de, de Sade. I liked and Quills. C- Cain
0: Cain I haven't Monslet. seen it in a long time. Yeah,
1: Michael Caine. Yeah. I think he's good. I'm going to say Philip Kaufman thumbs up.
0: Good shit. I mean like this is certainly his best movie. Oh yeah. But yeah, he's a he's a sensual style director. He's uh you know, his movies oh, yeah. have a touch of the erotic in them. I'll say that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you know, uh like so as as the as the pod contagion spreads and like the entire city of San Francisco is now uh <laughs> pod has been up. A, re- recruited into the into the pod agenda. You know, uh, Donald Sutherland and Brooke Adams, like the last people left. And we got to talk about we got to talk about Har- the dog face man scene. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. This so, is a really creative, like new level of what to do with the pod concept, because like uh, th- this is something like, you know, uh, sort of street busker troubadour, uh, like, you know, uh, <laughs> derelict play, of the drug culture,
2: <laughs> by from
0: the drug culture,
1: Jerry Garcia, by the way. Really?
0: Wait,
2: really? Yes. Yes. Oh I believe God. the
1: busker is Jerry Garcia.
2: Holy shit.
0: So we see this guy, like a, you know, a San Francisco staple, street busker and his dog, you know, every good homeless person has to have a dog with them. And he's like, Donald Sutherland knows him. He's sort of a fixture in the park. And then later in the movie, as they're, as they're trying to evade the pods at night and like, he tries to wake up this, this guy and he's sleeping next to his dog and he kicks the pod next to him and it sort of starts like spewing goo he sort of interrupts the pod copying process mm-hmm. and then later okay, remember in the first in, in the Siegel version um, Dana Winter uh, she freaks out because she almost sees a dog get hit by a truck and that's what gives them, a, that's what gives them away as being human in this, they're waiting, they're like, they're waiting at, the, at the pod distribution line where they're like, uh, Sausalito, Sausalito, we got pods going out. Everyone get come your yeah, pod here.
2: <laughs> Everyone with family in Seattle, come over this way. Yeah. And they see the copy, the pod copy,
0: like the, the fact that he was sleeping next to his dog and the pod process got interrupted. The copy is a fusion of man and dog. And it's a human-faced dog. It's a human-faced dog. And they see the dog cross the street and it's a great bit of special effects. So they have like literally a mask on this dog and you see the dog lick its face and it's a human face licking its own lips with a dog's tongue. It's, and it's super disturbing. It's really it's, upsetting. It's, super upsetting.
2: it's, it's crazy.
1: <laughs> one of the One of the first... When I when I was trying to figure out like how to be a musician and write my own songs, one of the first songs I ever wrote and performed in front of people was a song called "Human Face Dog" about uh, about this dog.
0: <laughs> Yo,
2: <laughs> it's a very singular horror movie image, but yeah, yeah the 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 way you see it in the distance and you're like, that's not oh something's my God. oh wait that that is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because and the it's like almost comedic timing because Donald Sutherland just got finished telling um. Like uh, Veronica Cartwright, I think. Like, all right, don't show any emotion, and then human face dog. Like one yeah. second later, and yeah. she just screams at the top of her lungs. You try not to
1: scream in delight as you see a dog with a human face.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, like you know, like as the movie ended, we get another scene of him um, hearing what he thinks is music. Only to be like you know, come face to face with the horror of the pods now being exported on like uh, on, on ships to be across you know to taking over the whole world, and then Brooke Adams. There's a great scene where like he like he picks her up and he's like, no, don't go to sleep. And there's a great special effect of like the husk of her body collapsing in his arms. Uh, it's so good. Mm-hmm. And then the, and then her pod body gets up totally naked and she's like, they were right. It's painless. And at this point, like in all these movies, I would just be like, I'm joining them. I'm joining Sign the team. Like, at this, this is just it's like, yeah, let's yeah go. It, it, you know, and it and honestly, it doesn't seem that bad. It
1: doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't. You, you don't have to go to therapy anymore. Um, <laughs> you know, like there's some kind of you rediscover collectivism. Like, like, yeah, you know, maybe let's say 10 years earlier, back in 1968, you're with your friends on the quad, and and the riot cops come down and they're busting skulls and that's the last time you experience
2: collectivism. What if you could do that without the police bashing your head in? You know, yeah, like and um, we've we've neglected to mention, but also he's been shoveling amphetamines into his. They both have <laughs> this whole time, and um, once Brooke Adams stands up, it's um something else that gets echoed. It's in all three of these movies. The temptation moment of like, and it's. I think it's really funny in the Ferrara one. We'll, we'll get to. I don't want to oh skip God. to it, but yeah. um, then he, but he has some fight left in him. So he goes to like burn down the pod warehouse where they're loading all the pods, and there's like an amazing action scene of him like setting fire to the warehouse from the rafters by like cutting um, the dangerous 1970s like Christmas lights. <laughs> <of>
1: yes, <laughs> yes, and then, and there's a lot of. Uh, Pod shrieking and like spewing goo as they as they cook, you know. It's like oh, a yeah.
0: hydro. It's a hydroponic pod growing facility. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> they've legalized shipping, pods in California. They're shipping weight.
2: Yeah, the pods are weed. <gasps> the pods are weed. It oh, makes you God. chill. It puts you to sleep. <laughs> <It's stink>. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then, like, yeah, like it, it's in the first movie, but like the pod shrieking is a very important part because, like, that's how the mm-hmm. pods. Uh, and it's like their air raid siren. It's a, it's how they announce to the other pods that they've just discovered a non-pod person is that they point and go, ah, like they do like a, a deeply inhuman shriek. That's so good. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, yeah, there's this action sequence and then it just sort of like uh, fades to black and it's the next day and we see Donald Sutherland and he's like back at his job at the San Francisco Health Department. And Brooke Adams is there. And like everyone is going about their business in like a very unemotional way.
2: <laughs> yeah. Mm, Everyone's efficient. just not
0: talking. They're just, the, you know, they're just sort of staring out the window blankly, but still going through the job of like testing lab samples they're, or whatever. They're, clipping, yeah. they're <laughs> clipping through the water cooler. <laughs> Do you know
1: what and, this is? It's a they're rat turd. They're saying, good morning.
2: Good morning. GM, good morning. Good morning. This is a rat turd. Okay. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> See you tomorrow. Yeah.
0: And, you know, you think that Donald Sutherland is like he's just in deep cover and he's like, you know, walking around outside. And then who does he run into in the park? But Veronica Cartwright, who, you know, earlier in the movie, her and Jeff Goldblum just run away together because they can't take it anymore. And Jeff Goldblum does this heroic act where he's just like, come on, you pod bastards, come and get me. Pod Mm -hmm. me up. (laughs) Another really funny Jeff Goldblum line earlier in the movie is when he's complaining about uh, Kib- Kibner's book, and he goes, "Where's Jack London? Where's Homer?"
2: <laughs> uh, so and he, he says, a- um, "I think like he also says like one of the theses of the like of the movie is that um, Kibner wants to change people to fit into the world. I want to change the world to fit people, and mm-hmm. I feel like that's like the exact like." Thesis of the like anti-therapy bent of this movie in the first one. Oh, definitely.
0: So we see what we, what we assume is Donald Sutherland in deep cover uh, in deep cover, trying to fit in with the, uh, the automatons, and he runs into Veronica Cartwright in the park, and they sort of approach each other, doing the NPC walk and the NPC stare. And then at the last second, Veronica Cartwright like smiles and sort of approaches him as a human being, and that is when Donald Sutherland mouth agape. Arm raised, points and shrieks. And what you now know is probably a very uh, very popular gif used on Twitter. Mm-hmm. A very but, famous image. Yeah, Donald Sutherland, he's, he's gone. He's at, at some unseen part. He has already become a pod. And the last shot of the movie is him shrieking as Veronica Cartwright realizes that it's over. That and it's the a, camera
1: it, disappearing into his shrieking, gaping mouth.
2: Yep. That's yeah, so brutal. <laughs> it's so sick. I also like. The thing about like this movie that I really love is just how annoying his character is and how like shitty his character is kind of because like not only is he obsessed with Kibner but like and obsessed with like trying to call the police at every turn but he's always like name dropping like he's always like um he never calls Kibner Dr Kibner he always says David Kibner or just Kibner and he um is when they're like let's call the FBI or the um Jeff Goldblum is like why? Why don't we like? Don't call the FBI. They're probably already turned. And he's like, "Don't worry, I'm not going to call the FBI. I'm going to call the Justice Department because I have a friend there. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh yeah, right. who is there. already who is already <laughs> yeah. turned? Who's like, thank you yeah. so much
1: for calling us. You are a very important person to us.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally. And like. um, the probably my favorite scene of the movie, the crescendo of the paranoid walking around San Francisco scenes, where it's like a montage of phone calls and he's like oh, trying so to tell the mayor like um what happened and as he's walking from payphone to payphone like taking calls from like higher and higher up people in the mayor's office or not even higher up but like parallel people in the mayor's office and he as he's moving between phone booths he's realizing that every single person in the city other than him is like a total like pod person and he's like becoming more and more paranoid it's like he's- so cool <laughs> He's like a he's like a wine mom uh, adding the FBI,
1: like responding to, fucking <laughs> yeah. air, responding to Aaron Maté or something. You know?
0: Yeah. Like, uh, at Justice Department at FBI. At- <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forgot. Actually, uh, th- this will take us p- perfectly into the into the Farrar version. But the, the connecting thread between the Don Siegel and Philip Kaufman version is a cameo by Kevin McCarthy in yes. the Kaufman version, where Brooke Adams and Donald Sutherland are driving through San Francisco, and like he's trying to tell her some joke that she's already heard before, and it's shot from behind them, and his like windshield is cracked because of the the rat turd incident earlier, where the uh, the waitstaff retaliates against him, and they're waiting at a red light, and then out of nowhere, Kevin McCarthy some. Thirty years later, is banging on the window of their car, going, "You fools! You fools! You're next! You're in danger!" And I love that because it's like if, if, the, if the original Seagull movie had ended the way it was supposed to, like his character just kept running on that highway for, yeah, for three years, 30, and, just, and then kind hit San of Francisco.
1: <laughs> just that it's like for the last twenty-two years, the pods yeah. have been spreading west to east, and uh, <laughs> McCarthy has just been hoofing it. Yeah. <laughs> Screaming himself hoarse,
0: And then like he runs off down the street, a bunch of people chase him and then he's, he, he dies, you know, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a great little shout out to the original movie and the original actor showing up playing himself again, uh, playing the same character.
1: His death scene is great too, because he essentially runs off camera, off screen down a street. And then that street is blocked. They see a police car going blocked by police. They slowly drive by. He's dead. And there's just a crowd of people around staring and, you know, you can't really tell whether they're pod people or not, but there seems to be a general lack of concern for this dead guy.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's great.
1: It's such a good, it's such a good part of the film. Like that. I love this movie. Like this is my favorite out of the three. It's, up there with like the thing as one of my favorite horror movies of all time. It's incredible. It's so good.
0: And like and you know, and again, like I I, I think the thing is very indebted to the these movies like of, of like the modern era of horror and like in, in yeah. locating sort of like the, the the center of horror as being like it's it not it's not it can never be reduced to just one thing. It's everything. And really at the bottom of it is this like sense of like the, the malleable nature of identity and who we think we are and who the people we think we know are. And like we said, this idea of going to sleep that like they get you when you sleep is something that's repeated throughout all these movies. But this idea that like when you go to sleep, are you the same person when you wake up in the morning or has the world itself changed in some way or have you changed as well without you being aware of it? There's something in the night. And it seems like terror. There's someone in your bed, and it looks like you. Mommy? Life will be simpler now. The only thing missing. Mommy? Will be you.
3: Mommy? What's the matter, honey? What's the matter? There's Mommy. She's right there. What happened?
0: Mommy, Mommy, Mommy! I've seen people
3: at the infirmary exhibiting paranoia. People.
0: Afraid to sleep.
3: Get in bed.
0: Afraid of family members. Let it go. People afraid of themselves. We gotta go right now. Which brings us to the uh, the third and final iteration of the body snatchers canon, which is 1993's Body Snatchers, directed by the grad the great Abel Ferrara. And you know, I don't even know. Like Abel Ferrara probably needs his own episode of Movie Mindset. Oh, he could have like five episodes. Could, uh, yeah, like. I, I guess I will sum up Abel Ferrara by saying there are industry directors and then there are industries the directors. And Abel Ferrara <laughs> is firmly indistriets. He's this he, man he's, is a
1: this man is a maverick. Uh, he loves. Uh, I. I mean. I'm assuming that he loves cocaine a lot. Uh, Uh, He is a fan
0: of both uppers and downers. Yeah. He's been a prodigious. uh, (laughs) He's clean now, but yeah, like he's uh, no stranger to uh, drugs.
1: He like quietly made some of the best movies of the 90s as well. Like I just recently rewatched New Rose Hotel, which is like an amazing movie. Yeah. Yeah. Adaptation of a William Gibson short story from uh, Burning Chrome. It's got H.R. Argento, Willem Dafoe. It is... (laughs) Walk-in. It's got fucking Walk-in. And it it does manage to... I mean, I know, like, in the 90s and early 2000s... Well, I guess mostly in the 90s, a lot of people tried to adapt. If not William Gibson's actual material, they adapted. They, They took a lot from him. He was hugely influential. And New Rose Hotel, on a tiny budget, looking greasy and grimy as fuck, manages to... Get closer to what I imagine that world is like than almost any other film mm-hmm. that I've seen based on his stuff.
0: Yeah, I would love to do like an episode about like l- some later era for our movies because everyone the knows Blackout, like, Killer, Killer. Oh, Th- yeah, Miss the 45 or there. Bad Lieutenant or King of New York. I'm talking, yeah, The Blackout, Go Go Tales, Mary, The Funeral. Yeah, like it, King he's King of New York, King of New York, incredible movie.
2: 444, four, four, The End of the World. <laughs> Ferrara,
0: um, like you know, we'll we'll explore Ferrara later in, in, in the God. series at, at yeah, some yeah, point yeah. in an undefined future date because there's there's really too much to talk about with Abel Ferrara. Oh, mm-hmm. Also,
1: just also probably some of the best directors' commentary ever committed to. Uh, oh yeah, to yeah, yeah of
2: course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> he is. Look at those big on wheels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like look at the, that.
1: The, you will never possess that not as long as you live. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there are director's commentaries where they're like, yeah, industry directors who are talking about how they set up the shot or what it means. And then there are able for our director's commentaries where he's like, I wanted to bang that broad so bad. I don't gotta, I
2: just <laughs> or the scene in, um, my favorite is um, in King of New York. There's a scene where um, Christopher Walken takes a shower and he's just like, look at that. Whole crew came out this day just to see what, what happened when his hair got wet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Amazing. Now, now, of of the three body snatchers movies, I would say that the Abel Ferrara version is the one that's the most actually horrifying and ter- and scary. This is like my the, favorite, I think. The, 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 like the, yeah. the first two, are like like the the idea is very frightening, and like the atmosphere of it is like so perfectly done. But but the Ferrara version is the most of like a, I guess like a traditional like horror movie. It's the grossest, and it's the most actually frightening, in my opinion. Now, this was a movie that it was. Based on a story by Larry Cohen, the great oh, sort of man. horror B movie director, but written by Stuart Gordon and Dennis Paoli. Now, Stuart Gordon, of course, is like the horror auteur, and Dennis Paoli mm-hmm. is his writing partner, who did all the Lovecraft adaptations, like From Beyond Shit. and Reanimator and Dagon. Uh, Stuart Gordon was originally supposed to direct this movie, and I think you can really tell at a lot of points of it. But like Abel Ferrara picked it up with a screenplay by Stuart Gordon and his writing partner, who's like, you know, probably more than anyone done the Lovecraft thing on film better than anyone else. Oh,
1: yeah. I mean, um, Dagon, just as uh, just as an aside, Dagon, probably the best Lovecraft, uh, like, straight Lovecraft adaptation um, put the film.
2: Um, also on the screenplay for this, though, is um, Abel's right-hand writing partner guy, Nicholas St. John, who yeah, has been right. with it, like, since the very beginning, like writing all his fucked up shit, and you can tell like what I feel like you can tell what stuff he added like because he has a very distinct style of um you know putting like really stuff that makes your skin crawl in movies like this like this movie is uh
1: out of all the body snatchers the greasiest like <laughs> it 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 has a kind of it kind of fools you in that it it opens and it has this antiseptic quality to it right like like there's a sort of weird flatness to it that i think is completely intentional it's set in the southwest it's like
0: no it's set in the deep south
1: or sorry yeah the deep south uh and there is this kind of bizarre like very 90s flatness to it but by the end of the film the, like and probably due to no soul part of the involvement of his of his writing partner the grease just bubbles through. <laughs> like, oh yeah,
0: <laughs>
1: the grime.
0: I mean, it's interesting, like uh, seeing how like uh, the sci-fi horror genre, like how how it evolves and like the sort of style throughout the decades. Uh, I watched this movie with Chris last night, and he compared it to like a a really high budget, really well done episode of the X Files, and I think that's right. exactly the right like sort of sheen and tone that Ferrari gets in this movie. Just a, a brief little note on the production here. This was the first film shot with Aeroscope anamorphic lenses, which were created for uh, by the German manufacturer Isco Optic. So, like, <laughs> you wouldn't think to see it, but it's using some, like, very high-tech, never-before-used uh, film lens to make this movie. That and the fact that Warner Brothers absolutely tanked this movie on purpose... By releasing it domestically in a a few dozen theaters, its domestic gross was a total of $428,000. Oof. So they absolutely killed this movie. And I think for obvious reasons, is that like they were worried that it was like anti troop or anti patriotic or whatever. And we'll get into that because this movie transposes it from California to a military base on the deep south and also shifts the point of view from the doctor character to his sort of like semi-rebellious teenage daughter. And I think in this movie, it really refocuses the action on the nuclear family unit in a way that the other two really don't. This movie really is about family and your family being replaced in like a very intimate way because like one of the first things that we hear of the the daughter character explains that is that her mom has already been replaced by her stepmother. Mm
2: Mm-hmm yeah so it's um, a father who's like an EPA inspector of some sort and his rebellious like 17 year old teenage daughter um, their 6 year old son and his wife who is um, the son's mom but the um, teenage daughter's stepmom because her mom died um, when she was like around the kid's age uh, the kid brother's age and um, it Upon the the beginning, the first thing that happens is they go to a filling station, another familiar location, familiar locale from these such movies, and um, they the daughter goes to use the restroom and she's attacked by a troop in this blood red restroom and he just keeps repeating like they get you when you sleep, they get you when you sleep. He goes and then like disappears. he puts a,
0: he puts a He's knife like to her. Throat. <laughs> Yeah. He puts a knife to her throat and he says, "You're scared. That's good. That means you're still one of yeah. You're still a human." Oh my god. Um, just a brief note on the cast here. Uh, the main character, the daughter, is played by Gabrielle Anwar, who I mainly know as a TV actress on USA Network's Burn Notice, but I'm That's not great. familiar with many other film roles by her. The father is played by Terry Kinney another actor mostly known for TV work, but he comes out of that like Steppenwolf theater company with like Gary Sinise and John Malkovich and those guys. And then we get Ferrara mainstay, Forrest Whitaker shows up in a oh, small man. role as like mm-hmm. the, the base, the army psychologist, who's actually a good guy in this movie. Yeah. And then we also get uh, the, the romantic lead, like the, 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 hero, the male protagonist is a guy whose name is Billy Worth. <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> who's a hunk. Yeah, he's, 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 he's a hunk. He's objectively He's a, hunk. He's a, a hunk, but he
1: is perhaps the weak link in the, great <laughs> ch- in the great chain of acting that is in this film.
0: And then and then finally playing the uh, the 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 general in charge of the military base is the great Arlie Ermey, you know, the, the, the go to guy for any milit- stock military role in American movies, who, you know, first uh, will for never leave the American consciousness as Gunnery
2: Sergeant Hartman in Full Metal Jacket. His real mm, right. job. His, that was yeah. his first <laughs> acting job. And um, don't you're forgetting, Will, the most, the, I, I believe, the most standout role in this movie oh, the, Meg as- Tilly. Meg Tilly is the so all. scary Meg in Tilly movie. is incredible she d- so scary So delivers good. probably my favorite line delivery in any movie ever in this yeah.
0: we'll, we'll get to that yeah. amazing monologue and is and bone incredible. chilling uh, Jennifer, sorry, Meg Tilly scene Meg Tilly's sister of Jennifer she was also in Psycho 2 uh, it was a sort of underrated sequel yeah surprisingly and, good movie <laughs> and like if Meg Tilly's in a movie it's the Meg Tilly promise she will get completely naked in at least yeah. one scene <laughs> And this movie is no exception. So, yeah, so like you said, he, the the father is an EPA inspector who's doing a tour of, like, America's... All of the poison shit that we store on our military bases. <laughs> I remember in our Tony Scott episode, you talked about how John Creasy was exposed to mesothelioma at Camp Lejeune. This movie <laughs> yeah. is basically about the guys who go around figuring out just how much cancerous poison is currently in the groundwater surrounding every major American military installation. <laughs> all right, so uh, the the dynamic here is that he is a... a a liberal egghead and and government bureaucrat being uh, put into a military base in the deep South to like tell them how to dispose of all the uh, chemical weapons that they store there (laughs) or how not to get sick and die from them. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a chilly reception, shall we say. But look, I mean, like uh, this movie is like this is like Abel Ferrara's military movie. This is his war movie. And the way he shoots this like military base and like the, the fucking like the blandness and the bleakness of these like uh planned like base communities and the, and then like the the really desolate like roadhouses full of like you know prostitution and Christ knows what else that populated like named the area Pop yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah but um again we see the uh, the garbage trucks in this movie and like the orderly disposal of human remains there's a really good scene early in the movie where uh, the Gabrielle Anwar character is like, you know, doing the teenage girl thing of listening to your Walkman, going for a going for a, I need to get the hell away from my family walk. And she discovers like the bridge work of someone's dentures on the ground as like the, the one thing that like wasn't copied. It was like still left over from the duplication process that's like littering this space. <laughs> and it's um so gross and it's another so great gross.
2: cameo um lori lightfoot picks it up actually it's one of the <laughs> these people that's right um
1: the song that she's listening to in her walkman she she also listens to in a later scene in the bathtub and i it was listening to you know when the song first came on i was like what is this this sounds like Echo and the bunny men like with a head injury basically like it's just terrible terrible <laughs> like ballad and i looked it up and it's a it's a song by a guy named Paul Hip, who is not famous for being a musician, but who is in Bad Lieutenant, Oh wow, <laughs> The Funeral, and Face Off.
3: He's, of clear,
1: the... he's clearly, one of, like one one of Abel Ferreira's like like drinking guys. buddies or something. One of the Abel like, Whack Pack. <laughs> yeah, one of the Abel Whack Pack. Who's and I can imagine Ferreira just being like, "I'm going to put your song in the movie. It's going to be a huge hit. It's gonna We're going to so play sick. it four
2: times." <laughs> Um, but Gabrielle Anwar meets the general Arlie Ernie's daughter, who's like a rebellious lesbian type, um, you know, cool leather wearing girl. And she takes her to um, the roadhouse. and um Yeah, Top Gun, which is the name of this like seedy roadhouse where, you know, like no good can come of this place. And she meets Tim, the cool... Um, sexy Helicopter copter, pilot. yeah, copter pilot, He's a chopper pilot, yeah. Yeah, 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 And um, he, she did meet him earlier when um finds her younger brother um wandering like the streets of the base by himself because um he was at daycare and all the kids are already pod kids, so they're all completely a really brain creepy dead. scene. Yeah, amazing like, scene.
0: They're doing like it's a daycare and all the kids are doing their finger painting. And the teacher's like, "This is very good. Let's Way show. Let's good. show everyone. This is very good. Show the class, so everyone, everyone, what you've been working on." And hold all the kids drawing. hold up their finger painting, and it's the exact same like mess of colors. It's, it's yeah. a, a, an identical copy of every single thing. And then the younger brother. And a very good bit of child acting like holds up his like, you know, finger painting. And it's just like, you know, some some other bullshit, you know, it's just yeah. colors <laughs> smudged around a page, you know, not very good, quite. <laughs> it's story. demonstrably it's demonstrably worse. It's yeah, demonstrably yeah. worse than what the collective
1: came up with. Once again, proving the immortal science of socialism.
0: <laughs> and like he's looking around and like and he just like no one says anything, but like he just feels like he's done something wrong and he runs away. It's really and, uh,
1: upsetting. That scene is It's
0: a very upsetting scene.
2: This yeah. kid gets traumatized. In oh this my movie. god. And this poor kid gets the worst end of the stick out of anyone in any of these three movies. Okay, can we talk about the scene where he sees his mom die? That scene yes. th- the first time I saw this movie, I was like, Jesus Christ. That was like the same like shock as like the dog face scene in the Philip Kaufman one. Is I feel like um, you know. It happens, like, five times in this movie, and it's all with scenes where this kid is, like, completely traumatized. Yeah, the kid um, goes through the fucking ringer. Like, he's, and you get a hint of it at the beginning
1: because he, he walks in on his parents, like, kind of canoodling. Yeah. and But it's shot in a way that's just kind of, like, Ugh, it's like a kind of, well, it's Abel Ferrer, so it's just grimy and, like, there's, yeah. I, I don't know. It's there's seedy. Just, there's something off. There's a sense of menace behind it. And then, yeah, and then he sees the the, the corpse of his mother just
2: disintegrate. Yeah, Yeah, he walks into her room and she's like asleep on the bed and he's like, mommy. (laughs) (laughs) And then she fucking collapses into a pile of dust. (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then so he
0: he sees the husk of like his mother's body just collapse like fucking tissue paper in bed. And then if that wasn't bad enough, if that wasn't traumatic enough for this 6-year-old boy, he then sees the his mother's newly pod body emerge from the closet fully naked. Fully yeah. yeah. nude. Just fully <laughs> like, nude and like this this primal scene of like freudian <laughs> incomprehensible terror as he sees yeah. the death like the death and rebirth of his mother's body as this like <laughs> sexual object in front of him and then it's
2: safe to say this kid is pretty fucking twisted for the rest of the movie. Yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, his, he his
1: is, brain is gone.
2: <laughs> yeah, it happens like a couple. There's a couple times where it's like um, this movie does this weird thing where it posits that like peace, like PTSD, turns you into like a pod person in a way because it like hollows you. Like it happens to the kid, and I feel like it happens to Gabrielle Anwar at the end where she's like by the end she has no emotion left. She's like yeah. completely dead-eyed because of the like horrors that she's, she's seen. She's got the thousand-yard stare for sure. Yeah.
1: And it's kind of referenced in um her character and Tim like when they're like getting to know each other on their on their date after the Top Gun club. They go into the woods, I guess. Yeah. Um and they play uh they
0: Never play have sk- I ever.
1: Never have I ever. And yeah. she and she is like I never shot a person and he Puts a finger down indicating that he has shot a person, and there's a pause, and he's like, Kuwait. Yeah.
0: You know? And you're like, oh, yeah, that happened. like, Oh, yeah, that happened in the 90s. And yeah, it's, like,
1: it was kind of shocking to see it. Like, I, you know, that was 1993, this movie. This is like,
0: the, yeah, Desert Stormhead was like just <laughs> over. And it, and it is so, it's it, like, this is why this movie is such an, and like, I think Abel Ferrara is probably the only one who could have done a movie. That has like this negative view of the military at a time when <laughs> yeah. like, you know, this was the '90s when like this was Vietnam was over. We had just had like a war that took two weeks and like ten people died or Americans died. Plenty of Iraqis died in that war. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, you
1: could it's, say it's like the only successful, uh, the only successful recent war the United States has has been involved. Yeah, <laughs>
0: like, yeah, but like like the military, like this was interesting about like going from like the therapy culture, like the therapy counterculture. To like right back into like the heart of like the military industrial complex in the 90s, being like the main source of like dehumanization and horror and yeah. like, like front loading that because, like, and like the, just from the second they get on this military base, shit, even before they get on the military base, like this world is so menacing and evil. And like it's, it's a slow burn for like the first half or so of the movie, but mm-hmm. man, oh man, the way in which Ferrara just rings absolute dread out of like looking out of a window or making eye contact with someone is just so impressive. Mm -hmm. It's
1: incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is the horror of the, of the base itself as a location. I was, I was thinking about that when I was watching it too, because during like contemporaneous with this, you know, you've got like X files where, the protagonists are FBI agents, you know, like, Mm -hmm. like this movie is hypercritical, hyper, hypercritical of, of the military industrial complex and makes it a place of total depersonalization. And, you know, obviously a place where it would be easy for the pods to infiltrate.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, like the the Terry Kinney character is taking like water samples and, you know, Forrest Whitaker confronts him. Who's like the uh, army major, who's like the, He's like a, the, art, the base doctor, essentially. And he starts asking him these very pointed questions about, like, can exposure to any of these cancer-causing PCBs or whatever, can they change people's, like, perception of reality? Because, like, you know, he's the character who introduces the idea that, like, I've been, like, seeing more and more around the base people are claiming that, like, people are not themselves. yeah. And, and he's, he's like, he's, "Hey, any, any chance that the chemicals are causing this?" And he's like, "Well, no, not really. <laughs> like, there's yeah. no evidence of that." And he's like, "Okay, well, keep me posted, regardless." And then there's a scene where they're like moving these like oil drums of toxic chemicals, and one of them like, first of all, not forklift certified. Whoever was, uh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The pods are yeah, not forklift so certified because they dump the violation. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> and then like you know, he sees that like the the burnt flesh is like slightly off. Or that it's, like, not blood or something. He and then takes he a be- sample. Yeah. yeah. So he begins to know that... He begins to see that, like, hey, maybe there's something weird going on here.
2: And maybe the most unsettling part about that is that the guy who got, like, his fucking leg burned half through is completely silent. He <laughs> is staring in this, like, half-cloudy-faced, like, hazmat suit is just staring off into space, like, with the thousand-yard stare. It's, like, so, like creepy like not moving at all just like like, no emotion
0: and terry kinney's character runs over and he's like we gotta get an ambulance for this guy what's going on and then what like one of the other military guys goes it's nothing don't work yeah (laughs) yeah he he like
1: moves to block his view of the fibrous leg tissue uh poking out of the hazmat suit
0: yeah um so, but, like, yeah, it, it's a slow burn until shit really pops off. And then I want to talk about, like, because this movie, like, with the Stuart Gordon, like, Lovecraft horror influence, I think it really does the most with, like, the pod duplication process. And, oh, yeah. you know, it's a 90s horror movie. So you got to have a great scene of a teenage girl in a bathtub unaware of the danger surrounding her, her, her lithe, naked form. Because mm-hmm. she's listening to her shitty music <laughs> in the bathtub. And like the pod is like in the ceiling, and it begins to like, lo- like shoot these tendrils through the little tiny like uh, holes in the the shitty like you know clapboard uh, like ceiling uh, material yeah, particle board in, in this like, awful yeah. yeah in this awful like military base housing, and it, like you know while she's in the bathtub like you can see these uh these tendrils like crawl up her face and go into her nose and mouth,
1: and then it it, it keeps cutting back to the pod where a uh like a embryonic version of her is gestating and growing in in this like uh just disgusting amniotic fluid. Its eyes are becoming less cloudy. And though the worst detail to me for some reason was so as her clone grows, the weight of it inside the pod begins to buckle the particle board above the bathtub. And it's just there's just something so fucking unpleasant
0: until yeah. until until like the weight of it gets too much and it just like the whole ceiling collapses and she's brought out of her like uh, pod stupor as like coming face to face with an unfinished doppelganger of her naked body it, like on top of her in this bathtub.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, trauma abounds in this movie and, you know, she goes and uh, the same exact thing is happening to her dad in the other room and she wakes up her dad and um, Meg Tilly, already potified, is like laying next to the dad, just watching. And, um, you know, they wake up the kid, um, they get dressed, they're like, oh my God, we gotta go. And then um, he tells Meg Tilly, like, come on, we gotta go, we gotta go. And she's like, go where? And where? there's. Yes. <laughs> and this is like the best line delivery in. Like any movie ever. (laughs) It's like so good.
0: No, we gotta go! What the hell are you talking about? Steve, this is important. Go
2: where? That's right. Go where? What happened in your room? Are you listening? What happened in your room is not an isolated incident. It is something that is happening everywhere to everyone. So, where are you gonna go? Where are you gonna run? Where are you gonna hide? Nowhere, cause there's no one like you left.
0: That's right. Oh God! Very important. He goes, calm down. This is very important. Very important question. Go where? Do what? Call who? <laughs> and she says, like, Who are you gonna call? Where are you gonna go? There's no one else like you left.
2: Oh, yeah so good where are you gonna go where then, are you gonna uh, run where are you gonna hide nowhere because there's no one like you left with her like yes. little accent it's like so yes. scary and then that scene is
1: fucking amazing because like it's so horrifying what she's saying and you can see it sinking in but he's still looking at her like she's the woman that he loves like the the wife of his one of his children and yeah he you uh, without talking you could just see him crack and kind of move towards her and then he snaps out of it you know yeah like it, like the daughter like
2: snaps perfect. him out of it. it's like hey dumbass come on yeah yeah <laughs> like it's
1: so fucking good
2: and then so- she does the signature scream and they run out and um then we go full war mode on this military base yeah, there's just mass killing starts like like uh, the streets yeah. are filled
1: with pod, screaming pod people running. There's like a pocket of resistance who just start mowing them down. It's just the, the, like massive amounts of violence. <laughs> the violence
0: uh, gets and, turned on. And like uh, Terry, Terry Kinney's character like goes off to like uh he tries to do something like he, he leaves his uh, uh wife and son. No, he leaves his daughter and son. Like as he goes off to do something else, and he encounters Forrest Whitaker, who's like the last, the only other human guy left on the base. And of course, he's all jacked up on speed, and <laughs> he he's ever? hip. He's hip to <laughs> yeah. what's going on. And I love I love Forrest Whitaker in the two scenes in this movie. Chris pointed That's this out, going from like good. Ca- ca- calm figure of inquisitive authority
2: to like completely. <laughs> completely cracked madman yeah complete (laughs) lunatic does more (laughs) amphetamine on screen in this one scene than anyone is even implied to do in the other two movies combined absolutely he's shoveling
1: pills into his mouth and he absolutely slays the uh line um he has the sutherland line where he's talking to somebody he's calling for help and they know his name they're like right away mister forget his name. Like, Whitaker. Right away.
3: <laughs> yeah. Right, right
1: away, Mr. Whitaker. <laughs> and he, and he says that, how did you know my name? I didn't tell you my name line, but he says it with such, like just like, he's completely unhinged, total fury. Like he's at the end of his rope. It's amazing.
0: <laughs> and like Arlie, Ermy and company come in and they're like, come on, it's not so bad. Oh, he's got a, Sorry. He's, he's got another <laughs> great like full-
1: fucking, he's got another great fucking line, which is, uh, he's, he's talking to the dad and he's like, He's like, we'll give him hell. We'll show him what the human race is really made of. I got a gun for you. I got a gun for you too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, and like, like Dad I, is like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? We gotta go. And
0: then, and then Whitaker makes the choice to like literally, like he takes the gun and like when it really comes down to it, he's like, oh well, obviously I'm just gonna kill myself because like you're not gonna get my soul. But I think, like as this movie turns, like gets more and more insane, as like as the war really kicks off, and like it just mm-hmm. becomes an orgy of violence, and like you said, Dan, in that line where he's like, "We're gonna show him what humanity is really made of." Here, take this gun. I think this movie <laughs> yeah. really strongly implies, in a way that the others don't, that like humanity really is the villain here. That like we need to be civilized by the by the pods because like we are just a rapacious species of barbarians that will kill each other and ourselves if left to our own devices.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's a, there's a speech, uh, they give a speech to Whitaker and they say, you know, we, they basically say, we've been watching you. Uh, we've been watching humanity. Uh, we've, we've, we've traveled the galaxy We're we're, we're old race. And they're like, it's the race that's important, not the individual, meaning like it's the collective, like, not the uh, yeah. Not not your not your human desire to uh, have individual freedom and give your friend a gun. Um. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and then at that point, Terry Kinney sees this, and then the next time we see him, he's like
2: already a pilot. He's he's yeah. given up, and like well, he's he, like we don't know yet, and he we don't know yet. He meets, he meets the daughter and the son, and he's like, "Come on, let's go. I have a plan." It's like we got to be act, very quiet. Yeah, if, if we act very cool and calm, then they won't know. That they won't know. We can trick them, and then um, the daughter is like looking at him for like a good like thirty seconds, and then she's just like pulls the e brake and is like, "Let's we got to get the fuck out of here." And um, and she, Tim she runs into up. her new boyfriend, yeah, who has, a, who has a gun, and then she's like, "Shoot him." Kill, Kill my dad. Him. Kill him. And it's and just he's like, like, wait, wait, wait. Let's, let's chill. And the dad is like, come on, calm down. Like, it's fine. I'm like, and she does not hesitate for even one second, just grabs Tim's gun and air holes the dad. And just blows the kid, him kid. Yeah. And, and at first, you're like, oh, she was wrong. Cause he's like bleeding. And um, the kid is like, daddy, daddy, are you okay? Oh, my God. It's like, oh, my God. And then he just melts like a fucking. Stry, you know. Street trash style. Like
1: that's where you really see the Stuart Gordon popping out of this film too. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I like when bodies just through.
0: crumple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love it. And the and the goop comes out. But yeah, like and then there's a there's a very cool scene towards the end of this movie where like uh Gabrielle Anwar and her younger brother are, are taken. Uh the helicopter pilot has like managed Oh, there's a really funny scene where like uh he's pretending to be a pod person and his former His former army comrades, like uh, his friend from earlier in the movie, come up to him and they're like testing him to see if he's a god. Yeah. And he just just goes, I fucked your girlfriend. And then he just (laughs) has to, like, and I, like we watched this and Catherine was just like, well, obviously he's lying. He's like he's like the less attractive best friend. There's no way he <laughs> yeah. had sex with your girlfriend.
2: Impossible. It's it's so funny because it's such like a weak test. But also, if I was in that guy's position, I would have probably laughed because I would have been like, what <laughs> <laughs> you think that's going to work? And then they're like, get him, get him.
0: <laughs> it's like yeah. this is the apocalypse. Like I've got bigger concerns here. (laughs) Yeah, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and this is the army. It's like we all fuck each other's wives and girlfriends. This is part of the spirit of
2: manly camaraderie. (laughs) And um, I love. Then he so he manages to steal a helicopter, but um, Gabriel Anwar and the the brother are kidnapped, and he sneaks into the infirmary, which is you know this is the um, scene where the guy the man has to kind of abscond with the woman right before she becomes pod potted up and um, it's one of the funniest this hilarious like you can just picture like um, Ferrara being like this is really the true test of the film you know this this guy does (laughs) And because he goes in there and you have Gabrielle Anwar and she is like fully potted basically and the new... She's covered
0: in tendrils she's like fucking Mm -hmm. dirty
2: as shit new fully nude husk body perfect bod like but totally clean is like laying next to, next to her and like sits up and tells him like, come on, let's like, let's fuck. And then, um, he hesitates way too long. Yeah.
1: He hesitates for, look at at those tendrils. (laughs) Never in your
2: life will you ever possess those tendrils. (laughs) He's like the, cause the, the dilemma he's like faced with is, Well, they're both the same, but one's a lot cleaner right now. wants to fuck right now you
1: know <laughs> that that scene may be kind of uncomfortable
0: given that it,
1: yeah it's just skeezy like the whole thing <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah like i don't know how old gabrielle anwar was she filmed this movie but she yeah. looks about 16 and yeah,
1: yeah. it's
2: very <laughs> it's she's like
1: art he he removes the tendrils he makes his choice and then her naked pod form is like arching off the uh off of the, the slab. gurney or
0: whatever, yeah. The yeah. gurney
1: and the shot like her head is not in the shot, it's just her tits, and like that's about it. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> it is, but uh, I, 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 gaze.
0: I, yeah. <laughs> I really, I really like uh, this scene in the infirmary though. Because like they save it to the very end, and it's like it's so horrifying. Because like more than in the other two movies, I think this really like it uh, really like foregrounds like the violence of like you know, of body snatching. Because like you know, see people absurd. being dragged into this infirmary, and then one of the first things you see is are, are like these. There are people in uniform, and then a half of everyone in the room is totally naked. Mm-hmm. And again, I think it's this like very conscious like Holocaust imagery of like nude bodies in the shower in this like medical setting, and they are order in an orderly and neat process with like a dustpan and broom are just neatly tidying up the ashes of their own former bodies remains into garbage bags and are like without any, like are just these nude bodies walking around like totally normally as they like dispose of the remains of their former bodies.
2: It's great. And they're like, there's one guy who's like freaking out and the, some of the bigger like nude men are which i'm sure are like porn actors that they hired for this movie because they've got great asses are like um <laughs> mm-hmm. kind of helping the nurses like subdue this guy in, the, in this like great shot of like all these like clothed nurses and doctors and then just like two big buff nude men <laughs> from several behind. nude hunks like yeah surrounding yeah. him <laughs> and, um uh, but they escape and um find the brother but the brother is the
0: brother's um, been missing for some
2: point yeah and then like they're
0: about to get on the plane and he's trying to tell her that like oh we can come back for the brother sure right (laughs) fine fine. Yeah, she's like I'm not leaving (laughs) without my little brother and then there's a scene of like where this little kid who you haven't seen in a minute is like wait wait for me and he's just like in in the, the scrum of all this like activity and chaos going around him he like he runs fast as his little legs can carry him into the oh, helicopter. Yeah. And she's like, oh, God, thank God we got him. Let's take off. <laughs> and then like, you're like, oh, <laughs> is the movie going to go there? And it's just like, fuck, it yeah, this, this is able for our movie. You better believe it's going to go there. <laughs> they take off. And as soon as they do, this little kid just starts attacking him in the pilot. Just he just like starts d- trying to blind him, biting his neck. Yeah, he just her. Like, screeching,
1: scratching. Yeah. And he's and like, him, throw him out of
2: the helicopter. Throw him
1: out of the helicopter, and she does. She, and she He and is superimposed,
0: like, 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 Han, like fucking Hans Gruber falling out of Nakatomi <laughs> yeah. Plaza, going, yeah. he's pointing and shrieking as his body is tossed out of a helicopter, Pinochet dictatorship style, and it's just like ah, it's like a six-year-old boy is chucked out of a moving helicopter, falling to his death.
1: It's amazing. I love it. I love that. That's my favorite of the body snatchers screams out of any of the movies. It's the kid falling to his death out of the helicopter. Fucking amazing.
0: (laughs) Well, then like, and then the question is like, well, what do they do? Well, what do you do when you're piloting an attack helicopter? They fucking, it's time to get some.
2: Yeah, have to get, <laughs> they some. get
0: some <laughs> and they 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 like attack the convoy because like there's a scene of Arlie Ermy where like in in all these movies they're always like loading up the trucks with the pods except this time he's like this one's going to West Point, this one's going to Fort Bragg, and by the way. Like, what the fuck is going on on Fort Bragg right now, if not some sort of body snatcher shit? Because, holy fuck, yeah. do a lot of people end up killing themselves or being murdered suspiciously in mm-hmm. army bases all across the country now? Yeah, a lot of six year olds falling yeah. with their arm pointed outward, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, screaming out of the Very helicopter. prophetic in that regard. Mm-hmm.
0: But yeah, like, they, they torched this whole pod
2: convoy. Um, my favorite little detail is right before they blow everything up, um, our Liermy's like, let him go. No one will believe him. And then they just turn oh, yeah, around and blow amazing. him to like kingdom come.
0: And like they blow up the pod convoy that's like exporting the pods to other military installations. But then they blow up like the, the their own base's cache of all those chemical weapons. And they blow up the whole warehouse with like this, like with, with chemical weapons in it. And there's a great scene of like the gas like just covering the entire military base and all the pods people are like their skin is like blistering and boiling as they choke on this fucking chemical weapon it's fucking dark it's <laughs> yeah. amazing it's, it it's is amazing stuff and there's a voiceover
1: in it marty is giving a voiceover like basically saying like i had a lot of mixed emotions <laughs> <laughs> like we were we were dealing death to the pod people and I saw their bodies melt like candle wax but also they killed my entire family so <laughs> like
0: she's just saying like our reaction was only human and that reaction only human. is like a violent incoherent rage and like and just revenge
1: yes against- and killing on a massive scale <laughs> yeah mm-hmm.
2: and I but I lo- also love that um the US's like crazy chemical weapons are just turned against them <laughs> by this like teenage girl and her um questionably age-gapped lover <laughs> <laughs> yeah. her hunky age-gapped lover
0: yeah and like you know the last scene in the movie is like you know they're clear to land in Atlanta and like there's like, like there's a guy like sort of like uh you know you know like mil- military style being like land here and he's got like the the lights in his hands but he's got the mirrored sunglasses on and it's like very much in in shadow and it's just like this 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 anonymous military figure, with like the open question of being like, "Are they already pods or whatever?" And then you get the voiceover slow mo, like chopped and screwed style of Meg Tilly's line reading earlier. Where are you, gonna go? yeah. gonna go? are you gonna go? Where you gonna go? There's nobody else like you. <laughs> the, I, the
1: end. The end. So good, but I I mean the ending in that movie I kind of interpret it as. Um, that military base that they landed they're definitely already potted up they're they're fully potted um there is nowhere for them to go cuz like yep. 90 yeah. i mean i just can't imagine okay you're at the military base in georgia and you get a call basically being like hey i stole a Blackhawk. um i unloaded <laughs> yeah I unloaded its entire payload and destroyed the base including yep. the chemicals um can you clear me to land yeah don't ask for the like missiles sure were, that we're on this helicopter. <laughs> yeah, you know what uh, you have kind eyes and uh, we believe you. the missiles oh
2: are they where'd they go? <laughs> <laughs> no.
0: Uh, so there you have it uh the the invasion the cycle that is body snatching and body snatchers, pods save America. three uh, very distinctly American views of the apocalypse. That I think uh, you know get more timely as as the apocalypse continues apace in our own reality here, because truly, in America, there is nowhere else for you to go. There's everyone's already gone, and the <laughs> there's world nothing is nothing for more, you to do. There's nothing yeah. for any of us to do except watch movies. Mm-hmm. And that's movie be, mindset. Yeah, it's, it's a, a movie it's mindset. It's bliss. It's bliss. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just be be reborn into an, the untroubled world of movies. That is movie mindset. <sighs> And I would like to thank Dan Beckner again for joining us talking Invasion of the Body Snatchers and to thank you you for the wonderful original music you uh, composed for this podcast. Ah, Thank you. It was a blast. All right. Till next time, everybody. Bye-bye.
2: Bye.
3: Bye.